0: The court, La Cour. <laughs> Good morning, please be seated. Case of Cindy Dixon against Wuntut Gwitchin First Nation, for the appellant respondent on Cross Appeal, Cindy Dixon, Bridget Gilbride and Archie Mann, for the intervener, Attorney General of Canada, Anne M. Turley, and Marlene Anderson Lindsay. For the Procureur General du Quebec, Mad Catherine Bélanger. Sylvie Boulay. For the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, Leah M. McDaniel and Michelle Annick Casey. For the intervener, Government of Yukon, I. H. Fraser and Cathy Mercier. For the intervener, Congress of Aboriginal Peoples, Andrew Loken and Emma Wall. For the intervener, Canadian Constitution Foundation, Bryn Gray. For the intervener Band Members Alliance and Advocacy Association of Canada, Ian Knapp and Catherine Dolette. For the Respondent Appellant on Cross-Appeal, Vuntut Gwitchen First Nation, Chris Statnick, Krista Robertson and Ellen Sigurdsson. For the intervener British Columbia Treaty Commission, Roy W. Millen. Joshua Hutchinson and Alison Burns. For interveners, Mitzi Nation of Ontario and Mitzi Nation of Alberta, Jason T. Madden, Alexandria Winterburn, Alexander Depardi. For the intervener, Carcross Tagish First Nation, Gavin Gardiner and Caroline Grady. For the intervener, Teslin Tlingit Council, Jeffrey Nichols and Kate Bloomfield. For the intervener, Council of Yukon First Nations, Tami Sharanik and James M. Cody Casey. For the intervener, Pan-Canadian Forum of, on Indigenous Rights and the Constitution, Bruno Jelena Fauchet. For the intervener, Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations, Bruce J. Sluzar. Bridget Gilbright.
1: Chief Justice, Justices, I'm going to begin with an overview. Ms. Dixon brings this appeal because she has been barred from the opportunity to serve on her own Indigenous Nation's elected government solely because of where she lives. This exclusion is discriminatory, antithetical to democracy, and unconstitutional. Vuntut Gwitchen's agreements with Canada and the Yukon have embraced rather than rejected the Charter. Those agreements provide that VGFN's powers are to conform with the Constitution of Canada and shall not affect Ms. Dixon's rights as a Canadian. These would be I I don't
2: think there's any question that it has to conform to the Constitution of Canada as pursuant to section fifty-two sub one. The Constitution is the supreme law of Canada. Really, the question is whether 321 uh, causes the Charter to apply.
1: Yes, and, and in my submission, in my submission, the parties have agreed. There is no question in their agreement that the Charter applied, and through the through the federal legislation, they have been given effect. And I will come to that. But in my submission, the promises in the final agreement and the self-government agreement would be hollow promises if Ms. Dixon was denied access to her charter rights by virtue of Section 25 of the Charter or otherwise. The current VGFN administration seeks to walk away from the express terms of the agreements ratified by their citizens in 1993. There is no dispute in this appeal that Ms. Dixon is eminently qualified to serve on Vuntut Gwitchin's government and is barred from that opportunity solely because of where she lives. She grew up in Old Crow, having been raised on the land by her grandfather, Lazarus Charlie. She moved away as a teenager to get an education, as many do, and has since dedicated her career to advancing Indigenous knowledge in the North. Today Ms. Dixon lives in Whitehorse, along with a large contingent of other VGFN citizens. She is a single mother to her son, who suffers from life-threatening seizures. He must live near a hospital, and so must she. She nonetheless travels regularly to Old Crow, and would continue to do so if given the opportunity to run and serve in her government. There is also no dispute that VGFN has legislative authority over Ms. Dixon, and all their citizens in Whitehorse, over important aspects of their lives. This includes their health care, their education, their access to social assistance, among other matters. Their exclusion from government, therefore, has direct and serious consequences on their lives. I intend to organize my submissions around the following three points, and the first is the one your question goes to, Justice Rowe. The first is the parties did not leave the application of the Charter up for debate. VGFN agreed their powers would conform with the Constitution, and Canada enacted legislation ensuring VGFN laws have the force of law within Canada. Giving effect to the agreements means ensuring VGFN citizens enjoy the full benefit of their charter rights. Second... Do you
0: see, I'm sorry to interrupt, do you see a difference between the requirement of residency for voting compared to leadership?
1: No, in my submission, in my submission the pillars Of a democratic government are the ability to vote and the ability, the opportunity to run and serve for government.
0: Because in this case, the requirement is for leadership and not for voting.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And in my submission, that's the twin pillar of democracy, together with the right to vote. And that's made clear from. The International Covenant on the Civil and Political Rights, who pair them together in Article 25, it was made clear by this court in the secession reference um, and it's made clear in Section 3 of the Charter.
3: Ms. Uh, Gilbride, you say that uh, your client uh, does not have the opportunity to run, but the residency requirement has been amended. so. The problem here is she can run, but if is elected, if she wins her seat, then she has to move.
1: Well, with great respect, with great respect, I say the problem is both to stand for office, to run and to serve. And that's because substantively she's barred. She doesn't, she cannot move. And so there is no value in running. The, the right to run here is hollow for her when she cannot take up. An elected seat if she's elected and move and serve so he, i i pair them together and in my submission the opportunity to run is at stake here for non-resident citizens who are unable or unwilling to relocate
4: does your argument apply your charter to the other considerations relevant to a person's desiring to run for chief and counselor, for example that no indictable offence convictions beyond their record for five years preceding the election, is no. that subject to charter review? Do you think
1: um, it's, sub- it's subject to charter review? Yes, in my submission, but we are not challenging. No, it I in know this you're appeal. not
4: challenging it. I'm just wondering about the, the the connection of your argument to the relocation of settlement land. Is how 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 tied is how tied is your objection to To that your your or is it it the sweep of your your charter claim would potentially extend beyond that
1: well I, i suppose there's two parts to it there's two parts to it and one is the applicability of the charter and in my submission uh they've agreed that the charter will apply to their powers generally so the charter applies in my submission to that provision but then then at the next stage, the analysis will be different. The analysis will be different with respect to the, with respect to the analogous ground, right, with respect to the distinction at issue, with respect to what's impinged. And here, here what we have is, is a distinction based on residency and based on an analogous ground that this court has already established in Corbiere, Aboriginality Residency. And I'm not sure that would exist with the other provisions, and they need to be analyzed on on their own. So
4: what do you make of the position of your, your colleagues on the other side who, pointing to the same provisions that you do, I'm looking at paragraphs 71 and 72 of their factum, where they say that the benefits and protections that are extended to all citizens guarantee citizens who are also Canadian citizens have charter guarantees against the federal and provincial or territorial governments, but not necessarily against the VGFN?
1: Well, in in my submission, that would result in lesser charter protections for Indigenous peoples, such as Ms. Dixon, such as her fellow VGFN citizens, where VGFN exercises considerable authority over very important matters for them, no longer exercised by the federal and territorial governments. Authorities were transferred here, formerly exercised by Yukon or by Canada, um, authorities such as healthcare, education. And if it were only to apply to the federal and territorial government, that would result then in citizens who are governed by a robust self-nation, self-governing First Nation, which we have here. Which Ms. Dixon supports and wishes to participate in, but those citizens whose First Nations have more authority would have lesser rights so, by so that argument. So you're not argument.
4: worried about you're not worried about the language of section 32.1, which, which seems to focus our attention on Parliament and the legislatures of the provinces and territories. Where, where are you? Where are you? rooting this connection here. You mentioned delegation. I mean, we're not dealing with a municipality. Where where, where is this connection? So
1: the connection in my submission is in how the parties designed self-government in the first place. This this self-government here was achieved after decades, decades of negotiation, and the parties turned their mind to this difficult question. They turned their mind to how are we going to make VGFN self-government, a government within Canada, and they provided terms in the agreement that it would conform with the Constitution of Canada. So the self-government fits squarely within the Constitution of Canada in my submission. And then, and then all the parties, all the parties agreed that it would be given effect by legislation, and that there'd be a legislation enacted by the Yukon, and there'd be a legislation enacted by the Parliament. And VGFN, through the Council of Yukon First Nations, was involved in the drafting of that legislation. And in my submission, that legislation takes care of this issue that you raised.
5: Ms. Gilbride, uh, uh, you sort of rely on, in your condensed book on the agreement. And you're doing that again in the submissions. And that the, it states that the First Nations powers are to be in conformity with the Constitution of Canada, which is then given effect through fe- federal legislation right? Yes. Uh, would it have been competent for the Parliament of Canada to have approved through federal legislation an agreement that said to flip your proposition on its head need not be exercised in accordance with the Constitution of Canada or that expressly stated that the Charter didn't apply? And the second part of my question, which is, follows up on Justice Kazeera's question, is what branch of Eldridge are you locating your argument on Section 32 under? Is it the first branch relating to the nature of the entity or is it the second branch uh, relating to the nature of the functions? Because I think uh, that is is quite important.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you, Justice Jamal. So on the on the first question, on the first question, I am not sure, and I have serious doubts that Canada would be able to say transfer their own powers and their own authorities without charter protection. That's, that was, that follows from the reasoning of Justice Laferay and Godbout later embraced in Eldridge and cases that follow. So I have my doubts but we don't need to worry about that situation because it's not the situation here and the parties were on all fours about the charter. Well I think we do have to
5: worry about it because it gives, it, it goes to the issue of what effect uh, the provision of the final agreement that you're referring to has, because uh, this is legislation. Uh, it's a self-government power, but it is uh, exercised through federal legislation passed under 9124, right? That's the basis, of, the federal basis of jurisdiction for the Yukon First Nation Land Claim Settlement Act and the First Nation Self-Government Act. It's an exercise of 9124 jurisdiction.
1: The federal government's enactment is an exercise of 9124.
5: So yes, I agree. I think it, whether the agreement could have provided expressly that the charter doesn't apply would raise serious questions about whether this was even competent to parliament to approve in federal legislation. And that also goes to the point about where the locus of authority, because if it's the locus of authority is... Uh, with, under section 32 is simply the fact that they've agreed that seems to me to have significant implications for the scope of section 32 as well, so I think Whether it's through the agreement it's itself that it ends the analysis or not seems to me quite significant for the scope of section 32
1: so so my, in, I agree. I agree with the f- with your first uh, Statement about the competence. I agree with that With respect to, it's not only the agreement that situates this within Section 32.1, and that's not my position. But my position with respect to the agreements is that you need not be troubled in finding this within Section 32.1 because it is the wishes of the party. It is expressed.
3: Do we have evidence? I'm sorry to interrupt, and I know you have a second part to the question asked by Justice Jamal, but we have some evidence in the file that uh, the parties, when they negotiated the agreement, they discuss this issue of applicability of the Charter or not, and apparently, and maybe I'm mistaken when I read the evidence, uh, they decided to leave this unanswered.
1: So, so in my submission, there is is an affidavit, um, and, and in my submission, that affidavit, with respect, is contrary to what the agreement plainly says. And what this court ought to give effect to is the words of the agreement. And when there's no ambiguity and what they plainly say is that there'll be conformity with the Charter, we need not worry about that affidavit and, and it ought to be given no weight. And that's what both courts did below, it was raised to the attention of both courts and both courts considered it, gave it appropriate weight and nonetheless found that the Charter applies.
2: If
0: um,
1: I, sorry. Oh, I was going to go back to Justice Jamal's questions. Um, and. Firstly, it's not solely that they agree that situations this within Section 32 to1. It is then, through an act of parliament, the laws of VGFN, the agreements are given effect, and the laws of VGFN are given force. And But my point about the agreements, in part is that this was by design of the party. So it did require the Act of Parliament in this case, to give effect to it, but this is by design. This is a practical way. That self government has been given force, given effect within Canada. And it ought to be, in my submission, a model. And it is a model. Um, and not it doesn't need to live in this inchoate jurisdictional space. It's grounded firmly within the Constitution of Canada and 32 1 and 52 as laws of Canada. But can no, I just. Now I'll ask
2: my question, if I might, which is. Uh... I completely do not understand what you've just said because I understand two pathways, one, which is by operation of law by the proper interpretation of 32 having regard to Eldridge. Now you can read it a couple of ways, but, uh, in the view of some, at least, uh, 32 one would encompass uh, this government among others. And therefore by operation of law, the charter applies. I understand a separate pathway to be that even, let us assume for the purposes of argument that the Charter does not apply by virtue of 32.1, nonetheless, a First Nation, in this instance, could voluntarily agree that the Charter applied to their self-government institutions. And that's that's open to it. To an indigenous group to say we, we embrace this we want to make this part of our own constitutional arrangements and that it seems to me is a separate pathway from 32-1 but you seem to have suggested that they are combined in some way and that's where i'm uh, unclear as to your submission perhaps
1: well at least if if not combined and, and and i do think they operate together here but if not combined both pathways exist here so both pathways exist here. If they're independent, they both exist. If they're combined, as I have submitted, it exists as yes, well. but how, how
2: can they possibly be combined? I mean, 32.1 uh, is not contingent on, on, on arrangements which may or may not be put in place from time to time. 32.1 operates as, as a general rule, whereas the, the particular content of an agreement may vary. I mean, First Nation X may say we embrace the Charter, we want it to be part of our arrangements. Uh, First Nation B may say, no, no, we're going to to set out our own set of principles, thanks but no thanks to the Charter for uh, the operation of our uh, institutions.
1: And, And perhaps I'm making this sound more complicated than I intend. What we have here are agreements and federal legislation giving effect to those agreements and making their laws of law within Canada, so it's only in that manner that I'm saying they're acting in concert. But well, I think
5: it goes, back, Justice uh, Roe asks a fair question, though, and it goes back to my question, my second question, which is what branch of uh, Eldridge are you under? Is it the nature of the entity or the nature of the activities? Because an agreement uh, doesn't seem to fit within either category, whereas the uh, terms of the Constitution uh, the uh, First Nation Constitution defining the objects of the uh, First Nation as being governmental and the various powers uh, that are set out in the agreement uh, devolution powers and powers of government such as the uh, you know, powers over education, health, social services, justice, employment, those seem to fit more squarely under uh, the second branch of, of Eldridge. So that's why I'm wondering about the legal significance of the agreement and I think to follow on Justice Rose's question, it's, it's, it's interesting to see, but I'm not sure how legally significant it is.
1: Well, what the federal government legislation has done through Section 10 is given VGFN's laws force, and therefore the laws, which are in my submission activities, are subject to Section 32.1a. Now, what the courts below decided, in my view, was a broader that VGFN fits within 32 as a government, the first branch of Eldridge. And in my submission, they weren't wrong in that that analysis, but this court doesn't need to solve the issue of self-government, indigenous self-government in the abstract in this case. The The courts have here an agreement with specific terms, a detailed agreement, carefully negotiated. And the courts have here legislation that gives the laws effect.
4: Do you so. understand? Thank you. Just to follow up on these two questions, I, I, I'm inclined to think it is actually rather important that we decide, we understand the basis upon which the charter would apply through section 32. And do I understand you to say that the court of appeal and the and the, the trial judge got it got it wrong? It, it, I've got 98 of the Court of Appeal opinion before me where the court says the VGFN council was by its very nature exercising governmental powers with within the meaning of Section 32 of the Charter What do you take that to mean is that? Is that Eldridge one or Eldridge two?
1: So I read that as Eldridge one and I'm not saying they're wrong I'm not saying the Court of Appeal is wrong. Um, what I'm saying here is that what we have is it's it's not referenced by the court of appeal, but it's made even more clear that there is section 32 government, or at least their laws are activities that are subject to the charter under 32.1A as laws that have force within Canada.
4: So, so it's it is the V. You, you're saying it's not wrong. VG. Your reading is that the VGFN is at once with the government spoken to in the first branch of Eldridge. That is, it's the nature of the actor. It's it's quite important because you you may want to confine your argument to the the final agreement and the self-government agreement in this case and the legislation brought to, to enact it, but we have to worry about what the consequences of saying that that's what, that that's the right way to go about it. And I'm wondering if maybe you might be on stronger footing with Eldridge 2 than Eldridge 1.
1: Well, well, certain, certainly in my submission, that's, that's through the federal legislation, we have strong footing on Eldridge number 2 and that, that is my submission, that these laws in this case um, are given effect and given force through the legislation the court of appeal and the and the yukon supreme court did go further did go further and i'm not saying they're wrong but i'm also saying this court doesn't need to solve that that question in this appeal but you just i don't think
6: you really answered um, justice jamal's question when he asked you about because you talk about how this this is basically a good model for self-government how the tr- uh, contracts were, were drafted and negotiated and you were asked specifically if the language was different and there wasn't the specific notion the constitution indirectly the charter applies and then the first nation would say well we have an inherent right to self-government uh, we've negotiated with uh, the government of canada we're not going under the constitution per se we've not had that language in that then wouldn't you be outside of 32 and it would be uh, the constitution and the charter of the band uh, or the First Nation that would apply?
1: So, I'm not sure we have any such agreement. And in fact, I don't think we have any such agreement. I know you don't have the agreement, but the question
6: was, would that make a difference? Because yes, we have the case in front of us, but we have national implications. And I'm asking you, would that make a difference? forget what we have here you were asked specifically would it make a difference and you didn't answer
1: well in my submission in my submission i'm not parliament and the yukon here cannot transfer their authorities absent absent their accompanying charter protection so if that's what would be happening in that agreement then that agreement could not have could not have effect in canada and could not be a valid situation so it's not whether it would be different in my submission. We would have something that that wouldn't be, wouldn't have legal, wouldn't be legally binding, wouldn't have legal effect. Um, now, that's not to say that the inherent right to self-government doesn't exist. That's not Ms. Dixon's position. Ms. Dixon seeks to be part of her government, but that's to say how it fits within the structure of Canada's constitution. You know, requires requires agreement and careful negotiation, like happened here. So, I'll turn to my second ground, um, which I'll state. And my second and third points Before
4: before you go on, there's one aspect of your position that I think just needs to be put on the table. You you, you may have an answer for it. I'm thinking of of a commentary on the judgments in the courts below, published in a scholarly journal where a scholar said that applying the Charter to the VGFN without its consent and heedless of the established legal order is a form of assimilation. And that, well, the lower courts might not have intended it as such, that to do that runs roughshod over an ideal of self-government based on values that are indigenous values as opposed to non-indigenous values what what, what do you say to that so
1: so first i disagree with the premise that there wasn't consent to the charter so first i disagree with that and you have my submissions on that Um, but secondly the charter the charter right the charter of rights which protects individual human rights individual human rights that followed from international law Are protected not only in the charter but in the united nations declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples and they sit comfortably with collective rights they advance and improve and enhance collective rights so i in my submission there's no harm there's no harm to indigenous self-government by ensuring that the individuals the individuals that are governed have basic fundamental human rights
2: but i i put to you that If in each and every instance collective rights and individual rights were entirely consonant and could not diverge, Section 25 would not need to exist.
1: So, well, I'm going to come to Section 25, and I'll I'll, I'll come to Section 25, and in my submission what its um, primary purpose is, and which is reconciliation and its scope and it plays a role here in protecting the special status that indigenous peoples have in canada the special status also recognized by section 35 The special status that no one is contesting here Um, but it doesn't play the role as an automatic shield and it doesn't play the role in regulation of an indigenous self-government, or the manner in which they exercise their rights over their citizens. So, In my submission, the Court of Appeal erred in two ways with respect to Section 25. The first is the Court erred in finding the residency requirement is protected by Section 25, and the second is that by applying Section 25 as an automatic shield and bypassing Section 1 of the Charter. So I'll address these in in turn. These are my second and third points. So regarding the first error, the respondent asserts in this court that the residency requirement is protected by Section 25 as the exercise of a Section 35 right. This is not how it was dealt with in the courts below, which found it to be another right or freedom. And in my submission, it is neither. In oral argument, I will focus on my friend's position in this court and I rely on my factum with respect to other rights, which can be found at paragraph 69 to 91 of my appeal factum, except to say this. The majority of this court in CAP was correct when they observed that Section 25 is aimed at rights of a constitutional character and which by that they are rights found within Canada's Constitution. And in my submission, that principle follows from the supremacy of the Constitution, set out in Section 52. It follows from the principle that one part of the Constitution shall not abrogate another and is consistent with the interpretive principle of justum generis.
3: So for you, you say that you refer us to your factum, paragraph 69 and following, regarding other rights, but can you just summarize in a couple of sentences your position on? On the meaning of other rights
1: so the other rights are rights of, well, how about this in my submission section 25 encompasses constitutional rights belonging to or for the benefit of indigenous peoples in Canada so other rights must be constitutional rights and they must be found in a constitutional document of Canada and I've given you some examples in my factum some some of my friends have said well that renders them redundant with section 35 and mm-hmm. and it does not it does not and I've provided examples at paragraph 78 of my factum and paragraph 8 of my reply factum um, so That's the place for other rights and Specifically what the courts below did is they essentially took a historic practice that doesn't meet the Vanderpeet test or they didn't look at the Vanderpeet test and made that another right and other rights at least should cover a different ambit than aboriginal rights. And and in my submission, there are other constitutional rights that are found in our founding documents um, that, that Section 25 is intended to protect.
5: The Gwich'in First Nation thought this residency rule was sufficiently important that they, it was put into the Constitution. And so um, I wonder why uh, the, when... Uh, Justice, Chief Justice McLaughlin and Justice Sharon spoke about rights of a constitutional character, why it wouldn't include something that is put into the founding document of the added, I mean it was added to the founding document of the Wutut uh, Gwitin First Nation. Why is that not a, of a constitutional character?
1: So, so two, two things in, in response to that, the constitu- by constitutional character, I do mean the Constitution of Canada, and that's because of the special supremacy that that document has. The Ojibway Constitution can be amended by majority vote, by a 60% majority vote by those present at a general assembly. So it doesn't give the same protection um, of constitutional rights. And to enshrine within Section 25, or to have Section 25 cover protection of rights that are not constitutional, would then be having non-constitutional rights that can be amended at the whims in this case of a majority vote so that can be amended um, abrogate abrogate other constitutional rights charter rights right and that's inconsistent with section 52 and it gives it gives those rights greater protection um, and my second point before i forget it my second point in that is that it's not enough to look at the Constitution as a whole. It's not enough to look at the Constitution as a whole. That would be inconsistent with how we define rights, and you need to look at the specific impugned law, the specific activity and the specific character, and examine it in its context. Um, And to otherwise just say, well, it's found in the Constitution, I think could give rise to... um, to protection of, of any number of provisions that are placed in there by majority vote, which is not what the intention of our constitutional our constitutional structure is.
2: But, but you, you, you seem to say that there's a, suggest that there's something problematic about the First Nation, the indigenous group, changing the constitution uh, under which they operate, is that, does that not go with being self-governing?
1: No, there's, there's nothing problematic about it and I don't, intend, I don't intend to assert that. My assertion is that the rights don't automatically fit within Section 25 and that is one of the reasons, one of the characteristics that they can be changed, why they shouldn't be given protection under Section 25 Which, in my submission, ought to be reserved for constitutional rights. So it's the system, it's the system that is embraced, um, but it doesn't mean they have Section 25 protection.
6: So, when you're looking at this context, are you also looking at, uh, I think, at one part I I read with regard to UNDRIP and the individual rights? Are you looking at that also in your Section 25?
1: Um, Yes, yes. And and it comes in play particularly, comes in play generally with respect to the principles that UNDRIP endorses, which um, are democracy and non discrimination. But it comes into play largely in the balancing exercise that I say Section 25 requires, um, and my submission that it's not an automatic shield. And before I get there, though, I would like to just address my friend's argument in this court that. Uh, They characterize the right as a Section 35 right. Um, They characterize the right as, let me ensure I read it here, as asserting a right to select leaders as an aspect of the right to self-government. And it's striking in my view that their asserted right does not include any reference to residency. Can
6: I just ask, so talking about um, selecting a leader, is there a distinction between the chief as a leader versus the other council members
1: um, i'm not sure i'm not sure is the answer to that what ms dixon ran for is council there's nothing in the evidence where they're distinguished but well
6: there there is evidence about distinguishment because when we're looking there's an affidavit that uh, and i think that's part of the master's thesis uh, based on that one interview about how leadership and there's a lot about the chief and I don't read anywhere anything about the council members everything that I read pretty much is about the chief so that leads me to think is there a distinction really between both that wasn't discussed
1: um, well perhaps perhaps I'll say this perhaps I'll say this Ms. Dixon throughout Ms. Dixon throughout and all the proceedings has said that there may be that residency surely can play a role here that residency um, with respect to the situation of the Vuntut Gwitchin, can play a role, and it may be that their chief would have different rules than the council. What's happened here is a completely discriminatory bar, um, excluding her from participation from council entirely. So it's not that it's not that the Vuntut Gwitchin cannot enact laws that are specific, and maybe maybe some of the specificities may be to, to distinguish between chief and council. That may be one of the solutions. And Ms. Dixon is open to the Wundtkwitschen uh, devising their own solutions here and devising their own residency requirement. They can draw a line, but they haven't drawn a line here. They've completely excluded here, and that's what's discriminatory.
5: You may be coming to this, but could you, uh sort of at some point uh, address uh, the purpose of section, what your view of the purpose of section 25 is, and then secondly, whether you agree with the framework that the Attorney General of Canada has proposed in its, uh, in its materials and in its condensed book and the flowchart that they've provided on the method of analysis, because obviously there isn't much guidance in the case law.
1: Sure, um, yes, so th- the purpose of section 25 is common with the purpose of section 35 in my submission it's reconciliation and it's reconciliation which is underlies essentially aboriginal rights within canada Um, with respect to canada's framework i I have two comments and these fit in more in my in in my ground that or in, in my uh point that section 25 is not an automatic shield and that's why the purpose of reconciliation is so important because what reconciliation demands is balance and compromise and it 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 demands a balance it demands a balance Uh, with respect to canada's framework i'll i'll say this i have two comments on canada's framework one is with respect to the mechanics and one with respect to their substance with respect to the mechanics in my submission you can't you cannot bypass section one the language of Section 1 makes it clear the purpose of Section 25 as a reconciliatory device, as a reconciliatory provision, um, means you cannot bypass Section 1. So, in that manner, I disagree with Canada's framework. You must get to Section 1, and that is where this analysis. And Section 1 is fully designed already and flexible enough to take into account and to assess the abrogation and the derogation of the indigenous rights at issue. So. I disagree with that. Now, in substance, in substance, I'm not sure there's much daylight. I'm not sure there's much daylight between our position and Canada's position. And I'll also say this, when you apply Canada's position to the facts of this case, which they haven't done as an intervener, but I'll do it. When you apply Canada's framework to the facts of this case, in my submission, you get to the same result. You get to the same result. The discrimination of Ms. Dixon must be struck down in view of a residency requirement that does not reflect a historic practice and was enacted for the first time in 2006, um, and I, there's not much daylight in my submission because that while we require an anal- while we require a balancing, they're looking at whether it's necessary to maintain the right. That type of analysis is exactly what can happen in a balancing. I take something a little more broad and flexible than Canada, but I think we get to the same place in this case.
7: May I just follow up on that in terms of um, section 25 is in the general section, um, and it's a a provision that hasn't received a lot of judicial attention. Um, The only other provision in the general uh, section that speaks of abrogation and derogation is section 29 which talks about not abrogating or derogating from any of the rights privileges guaranteed under the Constitution of Canada, and it's in respect of denominational separate or dissident schools. Um, Do you have any uh, uh, argument that's based on the relationship between the wording in those particular sections that might help assist in terms of our interpretation of section 25?
1: Yes, I, I think we can look to the jurisprudence on Section 29 and find assistance there. Uh, And in particular, and we've included it in our condensed book, I refer you to the decision of Adler. Um, And what Section 29 has found is that denominational schools within Canada, denominational and separate schools, are given a special status. We're going to, that was part of the compromise of Confederation, that they will have a special status. And their existence or their funding, you know, must be protected. And that's what Section 29 says, and indeed that's what Section 93 says. Um, But what Justice Iacobucci says in Adler is beyond the existence, right, beyond the funding of denominational schools, legislation relating to those schools is not immune from charter scrutiny. It's not immune, so I think there's a difference here. So when we get to the point where a right will be negated Section 25 and Section 29 likely operate to save that right. Save that right. So when we get to the point where it's threatened or negated, its very existence is what's at stake. And that's what Section 29 says. But it does not immunize all exercises and all the manner in, if you look at, if I switch to Section uh, Indigenous language, the manner in which the right is exercised from charter review. It may protect the existence of the right it may mean that, and and it ought to protect, the existence of the right. There's special status given to Indigenous rights within Canada, but the way in which they're exercised, the manner in which they're exercised, is not, through Section 25, taken out of the Charter Scheme, because to do so, in particular, where the right is the asserted right to self-government or the asserted right to select leaders, would end up in the situation we have here where you can end up with discrimination against Indigenous citizens themselves who seek to participate in the very government that, that whose rights are they're invoking to, to exclude them. Right, there's, there's a vicious circle here. And for that reason, that's demonstrative in my view as to why the manner of the exercise should not be taken out of Charter Review, and this is consistent with Section 29 jurisprudence. So looking at
6: uh, the, in the affidavits about what happened at the General Assembly and your client's uh, petition to allow at least one of EGFN's counselor position to be chosen from citizens based uh, in Whitehorse and that was defeated. Uh, When we're looking at the balancing exercise, uh, is this a remedy that's possible by going back to what she proposed and maintaining the self-government structure and, and the residency requirement for the rest?
1: Uh, I'm sorry. Is your question is one of the remedies having a seat in Whitehorse, a council seat reserved in Whitehorse?
6: Because originally that's what she, she sought, and that's the issue that was uh, defeated at the uh, general assembly. So my question is, is that a remedy? Would you see that as a remedy, as a, a middle ground to ensure self-government persists, uh, having that residency requirement, and also giving her uh, what she's seeking with regard to anyone who's off? first nation land to be able to um have access to sit as a council member so,
1: so certainly that is a manner when, and we wouldn't be here if that was the case ms dixon would not be here in this court and that is a manner to to impl- implement a re- to implement residency within their council and yet give participatory rights to the non-vgfn citizens so certainly that is a remedy but let me be clear that the remedy of this court is whether or not the law is um, of no force or effect or not. And it's up to the Wundtukwitchin people to devise the remedy itself. So it may be that they choose one counsel in Whitehorse, it may be they choose but something But your proposal
6: different. then is an all or nothing though.
1: No, no, my proposal is that this court needs to declare that what we have here, the complete bar, is discriminatory and therefore of no force and effect pursuant to section 52 of the Constitution. And it can go back. And Ms. Dixon has asserted this throughout. It's up to the the Wundtukwichen to devise their own residency requirements. They just must do so in a manner that conforms with her
3: charter rights. Ms. Gilbride, what um, what do you say about the fact that residency requirements are not uncommon uh, in Canada under other legislations uh, in order to hold an office? What do you say on that?
1: So, so firstly, two things. Firstly, there's not one in Canada. And a better analogy to the Vuntut Gwichin, I would say, and citizenship, which you retain whenever you move all around, is Canada and not the provinces and the the municipalities. But, and more to that point, or further to that point, the Vuntut Gwichin First Nation is not fairly compared to a municipality or a territory, which whose jurisdiction and governance generally is confined by geographic borders, and so their, their elector requirements match their jurisdiction. Whereas here, as I stated at the opening, the jurisdiction of Wuntut Gwich'in extends to their citizens, and it's broad, and extends to their citizens everywhere in Yukon, including the very large contingent um, located in Whitehorse. This is not, this is not, an election for the Old Crow Town Council. This is an election for the Gwich'in Nation Council, and they govern all their citizens. So the analogy in my submission falls away. I'll also rely and add to that on Justice McLaughlin and Justice Laura Dubé's comments about the difference between the residency decisions of Indigenous peoples and the average Canadian. Um, I'd like to just quickly quickly address what I was going to say earlier, that the respondent's characterization of the right to select leaders raises the inquiry to a level of generality that is contrary to Vanderpeet and does not take into account the actual regulation, which is a requirement based on residency. In my submission, a right to select leaders is akin to the general right that this court rejected in Pamadjuan to manage and use reserve lands. When the asserted right is examined at the appropriate level of specificity, specificity, that is it's a right to require leaders to live in a particular place, the evidence on the record demonstrates that leadership was not part of the selection process, does not appear in in Ms. Berstow's thesis or otherwise in the evidence. it was not a practice of their leaders to live in one place. Traditionally, the Gwich'in were nomadic. They travelled and lived in a vast territory. In the 20th century, their late chief, M- Peter Moses, was all over the land and he lived in Alaska and travelled to the Northwest Territories. Ms. Berstow's thesis indicates that VGFN leaders were selected by the people based on their skills and qualities as human beings not based on where they lived. And the the Chamber's judge finding a fact that historically they resided in what is their vast traditional territory was not a normative value of their society, but a historical necessity because it was not possible to live anywhere else.
7: But may I ask you if there was in fact a historical uh, practice um, uh, and custom and tradition, would that affect your legal analysis?
1: Um, if there's a historic practice that satisfies the Vanderpeet test, so in my submission oh, not okay. only a historic practice go but satisfies the Vanderpeet test, right. then we get to the balancing exercise of Section 25. So then Section 25 is engaged but nonetheless, nonetheless you must go through the balancing exercise and examine what's the impact here. Will the right be negated or will it be some other infringement and what's, what's on the other side of the balance?
5: So on that point, could I just ask you about that? Because I think, assuming the residency rule um, falls under uh, a right of a constitutional character that is prima facie protected under Section 25, once we get to the issue of reconciliation and the balancing between the collective uh, right and the individual right, uh, you say that at Canada's uh, second step, that there is a true conflict of rights you can't reconcile the residency rule and the section 15 equality right so we necessarily get to section 1 assuming that it's a right that's protected under uh, for argument's sake that it's protected under section 25 we get to section 1 because there is a conflict that can't be reconciled is that is that how you're approaching it
1: yeah yes i think so i think i think it's the, the only maybe maybe subtle difference between that is that once we have A section 25 right engaged the section 25 analysis the reconciliation the balancing can occur in section 1 it can be part of the analysis and there's no need here with well I'm not sure why
5: does it have to be under section 1 I mean Canada's proposed uh, a Dagenet-Mentuck type of analysis that plays before we get into section 21 that seems to be more consistent with the courts jurisprudence on reconciling competing uh, uh, rights and that seems to Fit, fit under section 25 before we get to section 20 section one.
1: Well it, it doesn't have to and you may and you may well agree with Canada and not with me it doesn't have to. That is one possible framework absolutely and I'm not disagreeing with that. My, my suggestion is that imposing a new framework uh, through section 25, which in my submission is an interpretive provision aimed at reconciliation isn't necessary here because the factors of section 25 can be incorporated into section 1. If you take your a framework as Canada, that's another possibility. It, it's absolutely a possibility, and Canada's framework, as as I have said, ends in the same result.
4: Do you, do it, you reject, just to follow up, do you, so I'm reading your the framework that, as you sketch it in paragraph 50 of your factum, first determine that there's been a breach of the charter under 15. Um, uh, if there's a breach, Determine if 25 is engaged, and and, and finally determine under section one. You, you, is this consonant with what the court of appeals suggested the framework should be? Your your colleagues are going to say, pointing us to paragraph 63 of of the judgment, uh, that that uh, the point uh, section 25 where. Section 25 provides a complete answer to the appeal. It's not necessary to engage in a full analysis under Section 15, and pointing further to a comment made by uh, the Court of Appeal, paragraph 153, warning that if courts were required to, as a rule, carry out a full analysis under Sections 15 and one before considering the applicability of Section 25, self-governing Yukon First Nations would end up spending significant resources defending moot challenges ultimately prohibited by Section 25. Is, it, is there any way that the, the the framework could be adjusted to take into account how appropriate it is to litigate all these things through when Section 25 will provide an answer?
1: So. Given my submission that Section 25 is a reconciliatory and interpretive provision, it's not an answer, it's not a full answer, and each charter infringement must undertake a case-by-case analysis. And that's consistent with this Court's jurisprudence, where we have charter infringements, and it's consistent with our jurisprudence under Section 35 that a case-by-case analysis is required. And to not consider Ms. Dixon's Section 15 rights, to not consider the effect of the discrimination on Ms. Dixon in my submission would be an error. Um, And is my position consonant with the Court of Appeal? It is at the beginning. We start the same way. We start with looking at the charter right. And in my view, that's the most efficient way to proceed because if there is no charter infringement, the analysis can stop there. So this doesn't add I don't think that the fear expressed in paragraph 153 um, is as as real as as it's made out to be. We have we have if there's no charter infringement, it stops there. You know.
4: Is it is it a, a prima facie prior charter? I mean, we make a prima facie case under 15, and then we go straight to 25. Given that 25, the. The, the the aspiration of reconciliation in 25 is not the same sort of, at least to my ear anyway, the same sort of um, collective individual calculus that happens under section one. Cannot we go straight to section 25 and potentially end matters there at the very least? No, it,
1: not if there's a charter infringement. Not if there's a charter infringement. And and. I, to undergo a section 15 analysis, to undergo a section 15 analysis, in my view, is not an extremely onerous exercise. You know, and in this case in this case we're talking about, you know that, that provision talks about potential moot challenges. What we have here is a citizen who's seeking to vindicate her charter rights. You know, it, it
2: Does't doesn't your position amount to this? How can you balance? something until you know that there's an infringement of an individual right. What is there to balance? You're balancing in a in a void.
1: Well, well, that's right. That's right. My submission that Section 25 is an interpretive provision requiring balance means you have to look at both sides. So, and it's only my friend's submission, which ought to be rejected in my view, an automatic shield that would stop the analysis there. And the automatic shield would take Indigenous persons in this case Ms. Dixon and the other Vyntekwitchin citizens, out of the Charter Protection Scheme with respect to the conduct of their First Nation. Um, I see my time is almost up, so I just want to spend a minute or two on Section 15 and Section 1, which I haven't addressed. Uh, The findings in Corbiere, including the analogous ground, remain relevant today and apply with equal force to VGFN's laws as to the laws of other government. For Ms. Dixon, she feels the discrimination in the same way regardless of who imposed it. The analogous ground of aboriginality residence is defined by two characteristics, race and residency, and this is stated by Justice Laura DuBay at paragraph 71. These are the characteristics that inhere in the individual. Indian Act status, on the other hand, is not a personal characteristic, and should not be imported into the analogous ground. The fact the court uses language referring to the Indian Act and Indian reserves reflects only that the impugned law in that case was a provision of the Indian Act relating to reserve land. This court's decision in Corbiere recognized the harmful assimilation and displacement policies enacted by Canada against Indigenous individuals for over a century. The adverse effects of these policies persist today and impact all Indigenous individuals, including VGFN citizens. The respondent's argument on Section 15 is essentially that by entering into the final and self-government agreements and achieving self-governance, the disadvantages VGFN citizens experienced by displacement and attempted assimilation disappeared. This cannot be the case. The self-government agreement is a step towards reconciliation, but the work is not done yet. Even if well-intended, the residency requirement is a step backward, not forward, as it exacerbates the impacts of over 100 years of colonial practices. And I'll just comment here that I'm struck by the contrast between the respondent's position in this case and the arguments made by the Indigenous claimant and in De Sattel in that case. In that case, the claimant and Indigenous interveners argued strongly that reading residency into Section 35 rights would perpetuate the historic injustices experienced by Indigenous peoples, and that's set out in paragraph 33 of De Sattel. However, the same harm arises from the VGFN residency requirement. In effect, in effect, however well-intended, And it does not matter to the people experiencing the harm that it was enacted by an Indigenous government instead of Canada or an Indian Act banned. The residency requirement in my submission does not achieve its purpose, but most importantly, it's not minimally impairing. And you have my submissions on that, that the Wundtuk Gwich'in may go and may devise residency requirements, but they cannot be a full bar to their citizens' charter rights, and I'll just close. I'll just close with with, with a comment that the ultimate power imbalance that is found between the ultimate power imbalance is found between an individual and her government. If there is one thing human history has taught us, it's that democracies falter and minorities are vulnerable to the political whims of the majority. Indigenous governments are no different in this regard.
0: Thank you very much. The Court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. Thank you. Please be seated. Mr. Turley.
8: Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. The focus of my submissions on behalf of the attorney general of canada will be on the interpretation of section 25 of the charter and the scope of the protection it affords the attorney general proposes a section 25 framework or construct that is purposive flexible and contextual
9: it is it, it is
2: also i would submit to you incomprehensible uncertain and uh, unpredictable but please continue
8: thank you in our submission it is consistent with this court's approach to identifying and resolving conflicts between charter rights in different contexts you will find a diagram that illustrates the proposed analytical framework in our outline at page two of tab one of our condensed book the court in our view should reject the shield approach grounded in the minority opinion in cap of this court and endorsed by the lower courts below. Its presumptive nature blocks the proper discourse and analysis of the scope of the protection and consideration of the potentially conflicting rights. The proposed analytical framework respects the underlying purpose of section 25 which is to maintain the distinctive cultures of Indigenous people within larger Canadian society. The scope and protection afforded must be anchored in that purpose. It must not overshoot or overreach. The first stage in the Attorney General's proposed framework are two threshold issues of prima facie engagement. The first is that the claimant, must establish that an individual charter right is prima facie engaged. If this is not done, then the claim is dismissed. If it is proven, then the party relying on Section 25 must establish its prima facie engagement. You see, this
2: is is where I think the thing turns into uh, something which is is about as as firm as jello. I mean, uh, what does prima facie engagement mean? I mean it's it's anything you wanted to mean what does for for a charter right i mean is it a claim is it is it is, is it, it, it you have to make out your case to a certain uh, level of uh, probability and what is how does how do you ascertain whether 25 is engaged don't you have to go through this thing sequentially and say is there an infringement and if there is an infringement is it one that is nonetheless uh not to be given effect because it would interfere with a collective right under which is protected under 35.1 this notion of balancing as if it's somehow in the middle of the air where you never actually decide anything but somehow a result is 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 arrived at is it is so amorphous that it is no guidance at
8: all in terms of prima facie engagement, whether it be for the Charter claimant or for the party invoking or relying on Section 25, in our submission there is symmetry on the onus that's respected. And for example, Justice Rowe, if it is a Section 15 claim, the mere assertion would not be enough, but the Charter claimant must meet the first part of Section 15-1 and demonstrate that there is a distinction based on enumerated or analogous ground. If we go to the prima facie engagement... Oh, yes, I see Justice Martin has a question. Yes, thank you very much.
7: I'm just wondering, under the framework that you propose, would, for example, the First Nation be able to just say, let's just go to a Section 1 analysis after the prima facie uh, breach of 15 has been established? Is that something that the respondent in that case could say, I'll either choose to try to engage Section 25 as a prima facie application or just say no I'm content to go to Section 1 and my pressing and substantial purpose will be engaged by the fact uh, of the nature of what I do and uh, the fact that uh, other considerations may bear on that uh, analysis uh, because of historical or traditional purposes.
8: Certainly, I think it's up to the respondent. They are the ones that would be invoking 25. They may choose not to rely or invoke 25 at all and determine to uh, meet the claim under the usual uh, charter analysis of infringement uh, and justification. But I think at any step, it would be open to the respondent to take themselves out of the framework, so to speak, um, or or off one of these uh, off-ramps. Yeah. Uh, it, if I can move, Ms. <Mr>. Turley, <laughs>
5: Turley, could I just ask, uh, just so I can, because uh, I want to, you and I have limited time. Is it fair? And I found the chart uh, helpful. Is it fair to say that it's sort of a, the section what Section 25 calls for is, to try, to reconcile the, the two rights. Allah la men that, that That's not quite that uh, approach, but it is. Uh, that's the family resemblance that has that bears to this right. And if you can't. If, despite your best efforts through construction you can't then you go to section one you go to a normal section one analysis and that avoids uh, uh rendering section one redundant uh, so it's really an it's really a mandate to try and reconcile but if you can't you know that happens and then we have a breach and we go to section one
9: well
8: i uh... In a sense, because Justice Jamal, uh, under the framework we're uh, proposing, uh, of course you look, yes, at whether the rights can be reconciled, whether there is true conflict. If there is not true conflict, then you would be off to the usual charter analysis. But if there is true conflict, then you would look at the necessity of the exercise of the implicated collective right. If it is necessary, to the maintenance of the indigenous group's distinctive culture then it would be necessary to modify or construe differently the individual charter right because that is what section 25 calls for is that the charter right or freedom cannot be construed so to abrogate or derogate and the necessity test informs the abrogation or derogation in our submission under section 25 so resort justice jamal in our view would only go to uh infringement and section one if necessity is not established
5: but, but you talk about modifying a right uh under dagenet mentak uh, the court talks about trying to give full effect to both rights um, if you use section 25 to modify a an external, let's call it an external charter right, then you're not really giving the full effect to both. You're actually using a shield and a trump. So I'm, I'm wondering about that step, uh, how that uh, plays out.
8: Well, at the end of the day, because of the language of Section 25 in the Attorney General's submission, it may be that after you go proceed through the framework, uh, that it may be that the collective right will prevail over the individual right to the extent necessary to give effect to maintain the distinctive culture. So it may be at the end of the day, which is different than section one uh, in, in the balancing.
4: Ms. Turley, uh, here we are not letting you, giving you much time to plead, <laughs> um, but just to follow up on exactly what you've been saying, one of the reasons that Justice Bastarash decided as he did Um, turned on on paragraphs 85, 86, 87 of Cap the difference between the French and English versions of the text of the Constitution. And he was struck by the very word that you pronounced, uh, construed so as to abrogate or derogate, the construed which is absent from the French. He found the English text to be ambiguous, and the French, which doesn't have a reference to... uh, an interpretive idea, ne porte pas atteinte au droit ou liberté, as being plainer. What would you have to say to that argument, or that view? Sorry, it's, of course it's not an argument, it's Justice Basterash speaking
9: the the
8: difficulty we see with the minority judgment in cap is it was uh presumptive in its in the shield approach and it doesn't lend itself to uh the consideration of the rights because it was devoid of any real analysis of conflict uh, and it really uh, results in an either or uh, proposition which we say does not uh, find support in the text of uh, section uh, 25. Um, I would say, uh, and I see I only have 20 seconds uh, left now, 10 minutes really does fly by, Uh, I would say that uh, as we've said in our facting, applying a necessity test is consistent with this Court's approach in other contexts. Uh, Parliamentary privilege subsection 15.2 and section 93 denominational schools. Uh, and if I, I can, uh, Chief Justice, this some, uh one minute of, uh, less than one minute of concluding remarks. I'll, I'll
0: give you one minute given the number of questions put to you.
8: <laughs> Thank you, much appreciated. Under this proposed framework, section 25 in the Attorney General's view can provide a complete answer to address the Charter challenge, including a contextual analysis of the conflicting rights. There is no need to resort to section one. The appeal provides this court with the opportunity to shift and reframe the focus of the dialogue and move away from labels, tags, and analogies, and adopt a contextually informed framework that will provide much needed guidance for the lower courts. Thank you.
0: I Thank you very much. Madame Catherine Belanger.
10: Mesdames and Messieurs les juges, Bien que, le présent jugement, bien que le présent litige pose le gouvernement d'une Première Nation à l'une de ses membres, le jugement à intervenir est susceptible d'avoir des impacts importants sur l'action gouvernementale en général. Le procureur général du Québec est intervenu dans le présent dossier pour faire valoir trois principaux éléments qui sont exposés de manière détaillée dans notre mémoire. D'abord, la Charte canadienne s'applique aux entités de gouvernance autochtones. Ensuite, l'expression « droits ou libertés » Autre, qui est employé à l'article 25, vise des droits qui sont inscrits dans des textes constitutionnels et des droits visés par la Proclamation royale du 7 octobre 1763. Finalement, le procureur général du Québec soutient que l'article 25 offre une protection que l'on peut qualifier de souple et contextuelle aux droits autochtones qu'il vise. Selon les circonstances, face à un conflit de droits, l'article 25 pourra prescrire un exercice de conciliation ou offrir une une protection plus complète qui empêcherait de conclure que le droit autochtone en cause porte atteinte à la Charte. Ma plaidoirie portera principalement sur ce troisième point. Dans un premier temps, je vais aborder la question de l'objet de l'article 25. Ensuite, je vais vous présenter le cadre d'analyse que nous proposons pour mettre en œuvre cette disposition de la Charte. L'historique législatif de la Charte comporte des indicateurs pertinents pour définir l'objet de l'article 25, notamment quant aux aspirations qu'avaient les parlementaires à ce que l'article 25 permette de concilier l'existence des droits autochtones, l'existence des droits propres au peuple autochtone, avec la nouvelle charte. Faute de temps, je n'irai pas les voir avec vous, mais je vous réfère aux extraits que nous avons euh, inclus dans notre recueil condensé qui se trouve aux onglets 1 à 7. La jurisprudence de la Cour illustre aussi que les articles 25 et 35 de la loi constitutionnelle de 1982 sont des dispositions complémentaires. Dans l'arrêt « Little Salmon », la juge Deschamps schématise la Constitution comme comportant trois pactes fondamentaux. Un premier pacte entre l'État et les personnes au sujet de la protection des droits individuels. Un deuxième pacte entre les po- la population allochtone et les peuples autochtones sur le respect de leurs droits ancestraux et des traités conclus avec eux. Finalement, un troisième pacte de nature, un pacte fédératif entre les provinces. Euh, L'extrait en question est reproduit à l'onglet 14 du, euh, de notre recueil condensé. En peu de mots, la juge des champs conclut que l'article 25 a pour rôle d'harmoniser et de connecter les premiers et deuxièmes pactes constitutionnels de manière à ce que chacun puisse être interprété euh, de manière à pouvoir jouer pleinement son rôle. Chacun de ces éléments est et que chacun des éléments que je viens de vous présenter illustre que l'objet de l'article 25 est de concilier la préexistence des sociétés autochtones avec la souveraineté de la couronne, objet qu'il partage avec l'article 35 de la loi constitutionnelle de 1982. Il faut donc interpréter l'article 25 de manière à réaliser son objet de, son objet de conciliation. Selon le procureur général du Québec, trois principes constitutionnels doivent également être pris en considération lors de cet exercice. Premièrement, une partie de la Constitution ne peut pas en abroger une autre, ce qui implique qu'on ne peut pas interpréter une disposition de de manière à vider de son sens une autre disposition constitutionnelle. Deuxièmement, il n'existe aucune hiérarchie entre les droits constitutionnels. Selon ce principe, la Cour a rappelé que les droits visés par l'article 35 de la Loi constitutionnelle de 1982, comme ceux visés par la Charte canadienne, ont la même importance. Troisièmement, Tous les, les droits garantis par la Charte et ceux visés par l'article 20, 35 ne sont pas absolus. Les uns comme les autres peuvent être limités pour des motifs légitimes selon les cadres d'analyse définis dans les arrêts Oaks et Sparrow. Selon le procureur général du Québec, une interprétation téléologique et cohérente avec ces trois principes mène à la conclusion que l'article 25 offre une protection souple et consist- contextuelle.
4: Maître Bélanger, vous me permettez de... De vous couper. Oui. Votre, vous avez entendu tout à l'heure votre collègue du, du Canada qui euh, prenait position euh, avec euh, avec tous les égards nécessaires contre contre le, le point de vue du juge Bastearache dans CAP. Qu'est-ce qu'est-ce que vous quelle est la comment vous vous voyez la, la chose entre la démarche proposée par le juge Bastearache, le bouclier. Mm-hmm. Euh, Euh, plutôt solide, et, et la démarche proposée par euh, le procureur général du Canada.
10: Euh, pour ce qui est de la, la démarche qui est proposée par le juge Bastarache, euh, le procureur général du Québec soumet que c- cette approche devrait être rejetée parce que justement, elle n'est pas conforme avec les trois principes constitutionnels que je viens de vous présenter. C'est-à-dire qu'elle aurait pour effet de créer, de créer une hiérarchie entre les droits constitutionnels, de, à toute fin pratique, vider de leur sens les garanties euh, de la charte et de Euh, et, et, et de rendre absolu certains droits, en l'espèce les droits visés par l'article 35. Quant au cadre d'analyse qui est proposé par le procureur général du Canada, euh, le procureur général du Québec propose son propre cadre d'analyse, puis il soumet que c'est celui qui devrait être retenu parce que c'est le seul, c'est, il est cohérent avec les trois principes constitutionnels que je viens de vous présenter et avec la jurisprudence de la Cour, notaire, notamment l'interprétation qui a été donnée à l'article 29 dans euh, l'arrêt Adler.
3: Mais, il oui. une distinction entre le, le cadre d'analyse que vous proposez sous l'article 25 et le cadre d'analyse sous l'article 1.
10: Euh, en fait, il faut voir ces deux dispositions comme étant, euh, comme chacune jouant leur rôle. Euh, c'est-à-dire que l'article 25 va intervenir dans certaines circonstances qui seront pas nécessairement les mêmes que lorsque l'article one va intervenir. Puis, pour bien comprendre ça, il y a une distinction qui est... Euh, Primordial à faire, et j'y arrive justement. Euh, mais avant, je, je, je me permets de réitérer la thèse générale du procureur général du Québec, c'est-à-dire qu'on peut qualifier l'article 25 comme étant un, un bouclier partiel qui empêche les mesures gouvernementales qui reconnaissent ou créent des droits propres au peuple autochtone ne soient invalidés du seul fait que leur existence porte atteinte à la charte. Donc, et j'en arrive à, à la réponse à, à votre question, euh, Madame la juge Côté. Pour bien définir la portée de cette protection, il faut distinguer le droit en cause de ses modalités. En effet, l'article 25 va seulement protéger ce qu'on peut qualifier comme étant l'essence du droit autochtone. Si on prend par exemple euh, un droit de chasse qui est reconnu dans un traité et par des lois de mise en œuvre, ce ce droit-là va bénéficier de la protection de l'article 25. Toutefois, l'encadrement législatif et réglementaire qui va découler de ce droit, lui, n'en bénéficie pas. Ainsi, si le droit de chasse est contesté sur le fondement du paragraphe 15.1 de la Charte canadienne, il ne peut pas être jugé discriminatoire, notamment parce qu'il est protégé par l'article 25. Toutefois, le règlement qui mettrait en œuvre ce droit de chasse-là, lui, pourrait faire l'objet d'un, d'un, contrôle, de la, d'un contrôle sous la Charte sans que l'article 25 n'intervienne. Par exemple, un règlement qui prévoirait que les autorisations individuelles de chasse sont attribués au sein de la communauté d'une manière discriminatoire, euh, pourrait être euh, d'une manière arbitraire en fonction de l'âge, du sexe ou d'un quelconque motif de distinction, pourraient être jugés contraires aux droits à l'égalité. Cette approche qui vise, qui fait en sorte que l'article 25 vise l'essence des droits autochtones est respectueuse des particularités propres au peuple autochtone et elle établit un juste équilibre entre la protection des droits collectifs et celle des droits et libertés individuelles. Lorsqu'il trouve application, l'article 25 va généralement commander de résoudre un un conflit de droit via un exercice de conciliation. Toutefois, à l'égard de certains euh, conflits de droit, l'article 25 va offrir une protection plus importante. En effet, en certaines circonstances, il va va empêcher de conclure qu'un droit autochtone porte atteinte à l'achat. Une fois l'article 25 engagé, il faut donc poursuivre l'analyse pour déterminer si celui-ci prescrit un exercice de conciliation ou une protection complète. En peu de mots, l'exercice de conciliation doit être fait s'il est possible de le faire tout en maintenant le droit autochtone. Si ce n'est pas possible, alors l'article 25 joue son rôle de bouclier. L'exercice de conciliation aura pour but de maintenir, dans la mesure du possible, le droit autochtone en cause, sans priver indûment une personne de la protection de ses droits individuels. La conciliation pourra ainsi mener à bonduler le droit autochtone dans la mesure nécessaire pour résoudre le conflit, sans pour autant abroger ce droit. Selon cette thèse, c'est donc lorsque le conflit de droits remet en cause l'existence même d'un droit particulier à un groupe autochtone que l'article 25 devrait jouer son rôle de bouclier. Dans de telles circonstances, un exercice de conciliation serait impossible. C'est donc principalement à l'égard de contestations fondées sur le droit à l'égalité que l'article 25 euh, fera office de bouclier. Notre interprétation permet une protection souple qui respecte l'importance égale des droits constitutionnels et permet de protéger l'existence et les caractéristiques essentielles des peuples autochtones du Canada, tout en assurant que chacun des membres des peuples autochtones bénéficie pleinement des droits et libertés qui lui sont garantis par la Charte canadienne. En résumé, lorsque l'article 25 est invoqué pour défendre la légalité d'une mesure gouvernementale qui qui vise les Autochtones et porte atteinte à une garantie de la Charte, le cadre d'analyse devrait être le suivant. D'abord, est-ce que la mesure gouvernementale porte sur un droit autochtone visé par l'article 25. Dans l'affirmative, il faut se demander, est-ce que le conflit de droit oppose l'essence d'un droit autochtone avec un droit garanti à la Charte? Ici, si on ne se trouve pas dans un conflit entre l'essence et le droit, c'est l'article premier qui prévoit. Si on se trouve dans un conflit entre l'essence et le droit, alors l'article 25 trouve application. Il faut alors adopter une, une interprétation conciliatrice du droit autochtone en cause, sauf si le conflit a pour effet de nier son existence. Dans un t- le code figure, l'article vingt-cinq va plutôt prescrire une protection complète du droit, c'est-à-dire qu'il va jouer son rôle de bouclier. Le procureur général du Québec soumet que son cadre d'analyse doit être retenu puisqu'il permet à l'article vingt-cinq de pleinement remplir son objet conciliateur. Yes,
0: merci. Mate. Yes, mate. Lea, uh, McDa-
9: Thank you and good morning, Chief Justice Justices. The attorney general of Alberta intervenes in this case particularly with respect to section 25 of the charter and the proper interpretation and analytical approach to questions where section 25 is raised i intend to focus my oral submissions today on one central point and that is that where section 25 is invoked to defend against to block a charter challenge and to potentially prioritize collective aboriginal rights over charter rights, that that collective right must be established using this court's law on collective Aboriginal and treaty rights generally, including being characterized with specificity to reflect its precise nature. And in particular, the context of this case and the difficult questions it raises relating to self-government provide a clear example of why this is so important. This is because where it is engaged, Section 25 has a potentially significant impact. It is prioritizing one type of right over another equally constitutionally protected right. It proactively recognizes something that constitutional law otherwise attempts to avoid, which is conflicts between rights. But where there is such a conflict, even after a contextually sensitive interpretive exercise and an attempt to allow both rights to coexist, where there is such a conflict, Section 25 directs a particular result. It tells the holder of a charter right that their fundamental rights must yield in service of another broader interest. And in light of the impact of Section 25, it's entirely appropriate to require the claimant to satisfy existing legal tests to establish their collective right. So what this means is that if, for example, a treaty right is relied upon to invoke Section 25 of the Charter, that treaty right should be established using this Court's general principles of treaty interpretation. And importantly for this case, if an aboriginal right is relied upon to invoke section twenty five, an inherent aboriginal right, the party seeking to invoke it should have the onus to establish the existence of the Aboriginal right through the lens of the Vanderpeet test.
2: Now just a quick clarification. In the context of this case, uh it is said it is being advanced by certain parties that Section 25 acts as a shield against the advancement of charter rights vis-à-vis a a decision of an indigenous government. In other circumstances, it might be an action of, say, the Alberta legislature or the Government of Canada. The framework which you are setting out to us, is it equally applicable, depending on which direction you look towards, that is an Aboriginal self-government or the Parliament of Canada, or uh, on the one hand, Parliament of Canada and a legislature. looking in one direction looking in the other direction an aboriginal self-government
9: it is this analytical framework that we propose is one that would apply to whichever party it is that invokes section 25 to prevent against a charter challenge now in this circumstance of course that's and an indigenous government uh and and practical realities would suggest that's most likely to be the case in a in a self-government situation but that Section 25 should be available to be invoked by uh, any party where it is, where it applies on the facts, and that this analytical framework should apply in all circumstances.
5: You seem to be uh, elevating the threshold to uh, invoking Section 25 beyond uh, the words of rights of a constitutional character referred to by Chief Justice McLaughlin and Justice uh, Abella, but then seem to be once you meet that threshold, kind of discarding Section 1. So I'm wondering under your framework, so on the first part of the question is, what about, what, why does it need to be an Aboriginal or treaty right? Section 25 seems to be broader. And then the second part of the question is, what's left for Section 1 under your uh, approach? And we've just heard from the Attorney General of Quebec about there being no hierarchy of rights. This does seem to propose a hierarchy
9: thank you and i'll address the first point first and it's an important clarification because what i'm speaking about with respect to the vanderpeet test ref- refers to aboriginal rights so if a party seeks to I- invoke or defend on the basis of an existing aboriginal right as that term is defined in section 35 if a party is seeking to invoke an other right or freedom the framework will need to be different and alberta has set out in its factum certain indicia that we believe an other right or freedom should have, and, and we share in the, in the view of that you've heard this morning, in that it, it should be of a constitutional character and pertain to the Aboriginal peoples of Canada. And in, in our view, one of the most obvious examples of an other right or freedom is the natural resource transfer agreements in the Prairie Provinces. So uh, that those are agreements that are constitutionalized in nature by virtue of being appended to the Constitution Act of 1930. And they're constitutional in nature, notwithstanding that the agreements are not treaties, uh, and so not be considered a treaty or an aboriginal right under Section 35, but are not withstand, notwithstanding that constitutional in nature. So if a right such as the Natural Resources Transfer Agreement rights are invoked, the analysis would depend, would would come down to the language of the agreement. If uh, If it's a different character of other right, a different analysis would apply, and it's Difficult to discern, determine precisely what that would be until the courts, court is faced with such a claim. But for the purposes of this case, we say that there's one thing that other rights or freedoms clearly should not uh, incorporate. And that is some version of treaty rights or aboriginal rights, which are alleged but not quite proven or not quite uh, do not quite meet the Vanderpeet test or do not quite meet the uh, a, a treaty interpretation right. So, what, but what I'm speaking of now, in terms of the importance of Vanderpeet, is, is speaking to when an Aboriginal right is invoked, um, is invoked in the matter. And I'll turn now to your second but, question, which was, uh,
7: sorry, oh, I just wanted to intervene and, and ask you if, if it's a, a part of a, the First Nations Constitution, is that of sufficient constitutional character for your test?
9: We would say. Where that constitution stems from a self-government agreement, which is itself not a treaty, where the parties have turned their minds to whether that uh, agreement is a treaty and have determined that it is not, and the constitution flows from an agreement that is that of that nature, that we would say that not every element of that constitution is... Of a constitutional nature. Now, there may be portions of that constitution that it reflect a, uh, a codification, as it were, of historical of Aboriginal rights that would meet the Vanderpeet test. And in that circumstance, viewed through the Vanderpeet lens, those rights may be constitutional in nature. But it is not automatically the case that every aspect of a First Nation's constitution, again, where that stems from an agreement which is not a treaty, analysis may be different if we have a treaty. In place, uh, or that is flowing from a treaty right. But uh, where that is not a um, where that is not the case, it is not automatic that every aspect of an agreement or of a constitution will be of a constitutional nature sufficient to invoke section 25. And I'd like to return to Justice Jamal's second question, which is with respect to the role of section one in this analysis. And we say that Section 1 is a different inquiry and and a, a First Nation government, an Indigenous government, may choose to invoke Section 25 to defend against a charter challenge, may choose to invoke Section 1 to defend against a charter challenge, or both and that where where the circumstances apply and the evidence is such that either or both would be engaged, that either or both should be available to that First Nation government. Uh, taking the example of this case and, and not speaking to where that test is met, but just uh, using it as an illustrative example, that it may be that something like a residency requirement could be justified under section one on the basis of general good governance concerns rather than being Strictly on the basis of a, of a Vanderpeet right, of an Aboriginal right, or or a treaty right, and so that both should be available. And Alberta would prefer not to set out strict rules as to which should be, which which uh, whether Section 25 or Section 1 should be analysed first. That that's something that will come down to the unique circumstances of each case. But that both should be available uh, to address Charter challenges. I see the Chief Justice may have a question for me. No. Oh, I'm sorry. You have 25 seconds. <laughs> Thank you. So I will conclude on this point, and that is simply that we say that it's the lens of Vanderpeet and the Vanderpeet inquiry that bring the analytical rigor and definition to uh, Aboriginal rights, and that bring the context-specific, the community-specific, and the historically supported rights to bear. Maintaining connection with the purpose of Section 25 and Section 35 as well.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. I.H. Fraser. Thank you, uh,
11: Chief Justice, Justices. Um, If I may, um, I'd I'd like to uh, jump into this discussion, as it were, with Section 32 and how it should be looked at, which uh, I, I concede seems a little odd since the gist of Yukon's submission is that Section 32 shouldn't matter. Uh, But uh, taking up uh, some of the uh, questions that were raised early on by the court with respect to the structure of Section 32 and how it refers only to Parliament and to provincial and territorial legislatures. Um, If I can go to the end of Yukon's factum in that long uh, excerpt from Hansard, which is in the factum at the paragraph 62 and following, in the section which deals with section 31 and how section 31 is to be interpreted. Um, As is always the case, if you put an excerpt into your factum, you always need the bits immediately before or after it. And in this case, just before the discussion that is excerpted in the factum, um, Senator Tremblay leads into that by asking uh, then minister chretchen uh if um if he'd agree that in fact there are only uh, two bodies that have legislative power and mr chretchen says yes the parliament of canada and the legislative assemblies Mm -hmm. then there's a discussion about well and if that's the case why have the language in section 31 that is not specific to those two entities um, mr chretchen then goes into a a long just on, on why that is so, essentially saying, because we don't know, there may well be other legislative bodies in future um, that we'll want to affect, we'll want to control by this provision. And, and that's exactly where we find ourselves today, Yukon suggests. We find ourselves with um, a third uh, lawmaking power in the constitutional order. And Yukon's suggestion then is that one must recalibrate one's understanding of Section 32 uh, to meet that new reality. Yukon uh, has submissions in its factum on why, generally speaking, one should not read Section 32 as excluding uh, Aboriginal uh, First Nations governments, uh, just on general constitutional principles. But there, there is, I think, this, this underlying policy issue which is it's very clear at the time these provisions were put in place there wasn't an intention to say we only want these two we don't want any others that wasn't in the contemplation it was in the contemplation of the drafters and, and and all parties as reflected in the hearings that new constitutional lawmaking bodies might emerge and there was a clear intention to have them controlled in the same way as the Parliament of Canada and the Legislative Assembly. So I, I would simply say that Yukon's um, fundamental position is one doesn't need to reach Section 32 because we're dealing with a law and the law is controlled by Section 51. But if one does have to use Section 32 as part of the analysis, uh, it would be a mistake to read it as excluding its application to First Nations governments. As to that... But but your
2: idea of recalibrating, to use your word, a provision of the Constitution seems to be so elastic that we could simply add or subtract as we see fit.
11: I I, I don't think so, Justice Rowe, because I'm talking about recalibration in the sense that then Minister Kretschmann was talking about, which is to say there may come a time, and and in his uh, discussion with Senator Tremblay, what he's saying is there may come a time when there will be another order of government which has legislative, constitutional legislative authority. And in the the discussion in the context of section 31 and why it is drafted in the way it is, he says, and if that time comes, we will want to ensure that the provisions that now apply to the Parliament of Canada and the legislative assemblies also will apply to that new lawmaking power. And so I I, I don't, uh, with great respect, I don't suggest it's infinitely elastic. It's simply that it says the structure of the Constitution, Section Thirty-Two included, uh, contemplated that there might well be additional lawmaking bodies. Right, and there is, and there is an amending
2: formula in Part Five, and and it doesn't include this body making it up.
11: Again, Justice Rowe, I can only say that I've, in the discussion in Hansard, there is there is a uh, an attempt to grapple with this very provision and and um, uh, whether or not one sees the addition of uh, Aboriginal lawmaking governments, Indigenous lawmaking governments, um, as however one characterizes their emergence into the Canadian constitutional structure. It is clear that they are here in the Canadian constitutional structure now. And the question is, how then does one interpret other provisions in the constitution to reflect that reality? If one were to take a a traditional view of the common law, and it is of course the common law that brings these new lawmaking authorities into the constitutional structure, um, they've always been there. They're just common law didn't recognize them because it didn't come up as it were. So, Yukon's suggestion is not that a constitutional amendment is required to put a new lawmaking authority into the constitution. It's it's here. This this court has held that. There there are clearly, there are Aboriginal uh, First Nations governments exercising legislative power within our constitutional structure, and they must be captured by it. The, The only question then is, is it in all circumstances appropriate to read section 32 as excluding them from the reach of the Charter? And Yukon and says that's not consistent with um, the understandings at the time as to what section 32 was directed to.
5: But the part, you, agree, you accept that the path of least resistance is Eldridge branch 2 rather than branch 1. You're saying it's under branch 1, but it could be under... It's, 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 we don't need to make law to fall under branch two, right? We just need to apply the existing law.
11: Yukon's um, position is, is not entirely that in the sense that Yukon um, says that once we have a law, section 32 doesn't enter into the calculus. It's a, it's a, a secondary uh, route to a conclusion that section 51 brings us to the application of the charter. Um, and, and I think, uh, as our factum says, one, one might th- read section 32, um, not quite in the way Eldridge reads it and says, well, um, maybe it, it could properly be accommodated in the structure more in terms of actions than in terms of, of, of uh, legislative activity. But um, uh, yeah, I think generally speaking, if you're going to look at the Eldridge analysis, in section 32, you're coming at the question a little bit differently than Yukon would. But uh, really Yukon has not taken a position on that because that um, that's sort of outside the, the run of its argument. The only other point I'd, I'd make is that Yukon's um, outlined the structural reason for its approach to Seeing Section 25 as a preclusive provision, a shield an absolute shield, um, but there's a, a another way Yukon would suggest the matter could be looked at, which is um, all through um, Canadian constitutional interpretation. The methodology applied has been to take the interests or values or principles that appear to be intention and to attempt to resolve that uh, through a balancing, not by the application of, of, of what are sometimes called bright lines. And a preclusive reading of Section 25 is a, is a bright line reading. It's, it, it, it says there's no overlap here. There's no interaction between the, these two areas. The charter doesn't apply. We've got a set of rights that are distinct, and there's, there's, no, there's no communication between them. There's no balancing between them. Yukon's view is that taking away the analysis that will take place in Section One is in, in effect the opposite of what reconciliation should do. Reconciliation should be um, uh, the knitting together of of poles that might otherwise be in tension. Mm. The preclusive reading of Section 25 says <clears throat> there's no reconciliation; there is separation. And and from Yukon's perspective. Preclusive reading is, is in fact, the exact opposite of what reconciliation
0: should mean. Thank you very much. Mr. Loken.
12: Thank you very much. Uh, Chief Justice, Justice of the Court, CAP is a national organization representing off-reserve Indigenous people, including many off-reserve members of First Nations. CAP's position is the charter does apply to indigenous governments and that section 25 should be interpreted in a manner that preserves a meaningful charter review of the residency requirement. I will focus my submissions on section 25. In the national context, the majority of registered or treaty Indians live off reserve or away from their home communities. The reasons for this are intimately tied to the legacy of colonialism Many indigenous people were affected by discriminatory marrying out or enfranchisement legislation intended to further assimilation. The partial reversal of this legislation since 1985 did not result in widespread migration back to reserves or home communities. Residential schools and the 60 scoop have also taken their toll. Off reserve members, many in urban areas, may find themselves at the periphery of First Nation government's concerns despite the key role that these governments play in their lives. This court characterized off-reserve members as a discrete and insular minority in Corbiere. Therefore, we say a careful delineation of the rights at issue is required to reconcile the participatory rights of off-reserve and remote members of First Nations with the self-government claim put forward by the respondent. Section 25 potentially shields Aboriginal treaty or other rights from charter review, but these rights have their own internal limits. First, they must be of a constitutional uh, must be constitutional or of a constitutional character. Under the Vanderpeet test, Aboriginal rights must be rooted in a practice, custom, or tradition that truly made the pre-contact society what it was. Other rights pertaining to the Aboriginal peoples of Canada should be of similar character. Uh, I pause to say, we would say that it's not enough to be written in a constitution of a First Nation because anything can be written in a a constitution on a a document, on a piece of paper. uh, There should be some level of a substantive test and it should be of a similar character to those that are protected under Section 35. Self-government or aspects of it may qualify as a Section 35 or other right but a specific electoral rule that partially disenfranchises a large and vulnerable segment of the community should not. Indeed, government of the many by the few is the antithesis of true self-government, especially in a context where fragmentation and displacement is tied up with a legacy of government interference. To protect the residency requirement as an Aboriginal or other right would risk perpetuating historical injustices contrary to Desetel. Second, Aboriginal rights are subject to the internal limit, that they can be curtailed where justified under the Sparrow test. Imagine that Parliament invoking its protective authority passed a statute that explicitly required all First Nations to allow councillors to be elected and to serve whether or not they resided in the home community. If that statute was challenged and the challenging party was able to establish a general section 35 right to set electoral rules, the court would still need to balance that right against the case for full democratic participation. This demonstrates that the claimed Aboriginal right is not absolute. Third, a residency requirement that divides an indigenous community is, at a minimum, somewhat distant from the core concern behind Section 25, which is to protect indigenous difference, according to Professor Macklem, cited by Justice Bastarache and Cap. Section 25 protects the special status of indigenous people from claims of discrimination by non-indigenous people. However, using Section 25 to shield internal restrictions within an indigenous community is less likely to engage indigenous difference. Professor Macklem calls for a balancing of rights approach in such cases Whereby the party relying on section twenty five is required to justify the restriction in terms of indigenous difference before section twenty five can become mister card yes
5: on canada 's framework then for section twenty five do you agree with it because you 've cited obviously justice Bastrash uh, in cap as well. Um, do you agree with the f- proposed framework of canada
12: uh, it, it is one route forward, but uh, Certainly, and following up on your comments on the dagenet Mentak uh, test, the careful delineation uh, process requires you to consider both competing rights and what, how to give them full effect and what their true uh, uh, limits are. Th- there is not uh, very much case law on indigenous groups using aboriginal rights to exclude part of the community. And I would say, if this is permissible at all, at the very least, in those cases, where using to exclude a part of the community is at issue, uh, the uh, proponent should have to show that it's necessary to preserving the distinctive culture uh, of the collective, rather than a case of uh, what psychologists might call the in-group versus the out-group, um, not, a mece- not a measure that's necessary to protect matters that are integral to a distinctive uh, indigenous uh, culture. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Written Grey.
12: Good
13: morning, the Canadian Constitution Foundation intervenes in this appeal to make three submissions. First, Section 25 has a partial shielding function, but it does not deprive an Indigenous person from making a charter claim against an Indigenous government or shield all decision making uh, by Indigenous governments from charter review. Second, Interpreting Section 25 as an absolute shield, as the courts have done below, could have significant consequences for the rights of Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians. Third, the collective interests of Indigenous peoples can be considered and accounted for in Section 1 when Section 25 is not engaged. Dealing with the interpretation of Section 25, we submit that the text and context indicates that this section has two purposes. The first is to recognize that Indigenous peoples have certain collective rights in addition to their individual charter rights. The second is to ensure that those collective rights are protected, particularly from external challenges seeking to undermine Indigenous difference. It is a codification in part of the principle recognized by this court in other contexts that you cannot use one part of the constitution to invalidate another, such as section 35, Or section 9124 this is similar to the purpose of section 29 this acts as a shield against charter claims by non-indigenous canadians that are challenging the fact that indigenous groups have additional collective rights that they do not have it is not however a complete shield as there is no indication in the historical context that section 25 was intended to deny indigenous canadians their individual charter rights including with respect to the conduct of Indigenous governments. This is consistent with Justice Bastarash's reasons in CAP, in which he found, after reviewing the legislative history, that there is no reason to believe that Section 25 has taken Aboriginals out of the Charter Protection Scheme. In in that respect, I differ from my my friend for the Attorney General of Canada. I do not think Justice Basterash found it was an absolute shield. And he talks about distinctions between internal and external restrictions at paragraphs 98 and 99 applying the charter to indigenous governments would not abrogate or derogate from any right of self-government in a way that is contrary to section 25 section 25 would protect against charter challenges to the existence of any such right but it does not mean that the exercise of government powers pursuant to such right is immune from charter review this is similar to the court's approach to the application of the Charter to federal and provincial laws, including in Quebec, which has its own language, culture, and legal tradition. The Charter cannot be used to take that away, but it does not prevent the Charter review of laws enacted pursuant to government powers. This interpretation is also consistent with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which recognizes in Article 1 and 2. That indigenous peoples have rights as individuals to equality and the full enjoyment of all human rights and fundamental freedoms as recognized in the universal declaration of human rights and international human rights law it also recognizes that the right to self-determination may be subject to limitations in accordance with international human rights obligations as set out in article 46. interpreting section 25 as an absolute shield to charter review would have significant consequences particularly in the context of the aboriginal right of any aboriginal right to self-government the congress of aboriginal peoples and the band members alliance and advocacy association of canada have highlighted significant potential implications for the equality rights of members that reside off reserve or treaty lands but this goes beyond equality issues for example If an Indigenous group were able to establish an Aboriginal right to self-government and that it includes the establishment and creation of an Indigenous police force, both Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous peoples present on reserve treaty or Aboriginal title lands could in theory be deprived of various charter protections without remedy, including the right against unreasonable search and seizure. This is not to suggest that Indigenous governments would do so, but there would be no Indigenous, uh, there would be no Charter protection if this were to occur. In our submission, this does not accord with the purpose of Section 25. Where Section 25 is not engaged and there is a violation of a Charter right, the collective and societal interests of Indigenous peoples can be taken into account in the Section 1 analysis. This court has recognized that governments must have a margin of appreciation in selecting the means to achieve its objective, including in the provincial context, and the same can be done with Aboriginal rights as the Charter, um, as the Charter can take into account Aboriginal perspectives, culture and traditions in any Section 1 analysis. Those Thank are you
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Ian Kanap. Uh,
14: Chief Justice, Justices. Uh, my client, the Band Members Alliance and Advocacy Association of Canada, is a national organization which exists to assist Aboriginal individuals in their uh, d- resolving their conflicts with their Indigenous governments. And so its intervention today is focused on uh, highlighting the individual challenges Aboriginal Band members have in their daily lives and interactions with the governments and to ha- assist the court in resolving what I say is... Or, Resolving a balance, or balancing, uh, or delineating the limits of the ch- of charter rights as they uh, w- when they come into interact with Aboriginal rights. Uh, now, my my submission is generally focused on the principle that, or at least the, the submission that is, is the court must strike a balance in in preserving space for Aboriginal rights, preserving space for Aboriginal expression of rights while at the same time ensuring that individual band members of uh, of nations are – continue to enjoy the promise of charter rights guaranteed in our constitution. Um, This is important because in my submission, Aboriginal people are among the most vulnerable individuals in Canada. This Court has recognized in numerous cases from Ipoli to Corbiere and Gladue that Aboriginal people suffer from Pronounced social disadvantage in a variety of aspects of their life, from education, economics, uh, social uh, social discrimination, and, and if history has taught us anything, um, vulnerable members of society are those who tend to rely more on government support and assistance to get through, and that exposes those people to corresponding potential for abuse from their governments, and in, in that respect the Charter presents an important backstop for Aboriginal people in their day-to-day lives who quite frankly rely heavily on their Aboriginal governments. Now I pause, pause here to note that this case is subtly different than the case that uh, Justice Bastarash faced in CAP In in in, in that case Justice Basterash faced a decision or an issue where uh, it, an individual external to the nation in question or the Aboriginal interest asserted their uh, equality rights against uh, an Aboriginal right to fish. This is a case, however, about whether the Charter and to what extent the Charter applies to internally limit the exercise of an Aboriginal right. Um, And so I'd like to focus my submissions because there are, two, there are two issues in this case. The first question is the section 32 issue, and then section 25. And I'd like to focus my submissions the remaining time I have on the section 25 point. And I say that the, I, I've set out in my factum in paragraphs uh, 34 to 38 a framework or a test. The test largely parallels in my submission what the appellants have done. I briefly, I say section one is appropriately considered for the reasons Justice Rowe identified at, at the front end in, in assessing whether there's a conflict in the first place. But I say that the balance is necessary and appropriate for three reasons. The first is, is that uh, Aboriginal rights are not frozen in time. Um, in, in my submission, in, in courts have, this court has consistently held in cases such as Sparrow, Mitchell and others, Uh, rights must be evolved within, or must be understood within an evolving factual circumstances, but also in, I say, legal circumstances. And in the same way that an Aboriginal right to hunt exists in the context of modern firearms and tracking technology, Aboriginal rights exist within the modern landscape, legal landscape, which includes the Charter and other constitutional rights. Secondly, I say that there is space for the Charter for Aboriginal rights. And and I say that it is a a false choice or a false distinction to say that Aboriginal rights, including the right to self-government, are inconsistent with individual rights. That proposition is based on what I say is an improper assumption and bordering on a stereotype of Aboriginal rights and societies, which are numerous and diverse and different across Canada. Indigenous people and their cultures are not monolithic. There are hundreds of First Nations, as I've said, and each of those nations have distinct social orders and legal traditions. And when we put that together with the fact that numerous international instruments embraced across a wide variety of cultures and legal orders in international society have accepted that individual rights are an important bedrock of society through uh, various uh, legal instruments, including UNDRIP, in my submission, there is no necess- necessary inconsistency. And so it is important to engage in a balancing exercise. I note the time, if the Chief Justice will allow me one final submission on reconciliation uh 30 seconds i say that thank you thank you chief justice uh reconciliation in this context demands balance um in my submission the court can be comfortable in in, in knowing that reconciliation is is a is finding a way forward merging both legal orders this court has said in uh uh Vanderpiet, in shaunet various cases running all the way up into Desautels that an aboriginal right must be understood not only sensitive to the aboriginal perspective but also must be aware that aboriginal rights exist within the context of our general legal system in Canada. Um, Those are my submissions.
0: Thank you very much. The court will take a 10 minutes break. Merci, allez vous, vous asseoir. C'est
15: Chief Justice, Justices, Vontagwitchin are the people of the lakes, taking our name from the very land and territory where the ancestors we descend from were born, lived on, and survived together. We still exist today as Vontagwitchin because of those past generations, the decisions they made together on the land in accordance with our traditions, and their unwavering commitment to maintain our spiritual connection to our territory for future generations. The provision that's being challenged in this case, the Council residency responsibility or requirement, was chosen by the Wontogwitchin General Assembly in a continuation of historic Wontogwitchin laws, customs, and practices regarding leadership selection. It requires successful leadership candidates elected to council to reside on Gwitchin settlement land at the seat of government during the term of their office. As found as fact by the Yukon Supreme Court, the responsibility is the decision of a self-governing First Nation to retain a historic practice or custom, which would have been unthinkable or impossible to breach in the past and that this method of decision-making was and remains the foundation of vantagwichan community self-sufficiency, culture and survival on the land.
6: Can this I just ask, what is your response then to Ms. Dixon's argument uh, and some of her evidence that this is not necessarily a historic function where there is uh, evidence that in the past one of the chiefs did not uh, reside, uh, reside on the land? Uh,
15: with respect, we disagree uh, that uh, the connection of leaders to our specific territory in maintaining that uh, has, has always been uh, fundamentally important. Uh, as found again by fact, every Vantagwitchin leader has always resided on the traditional territory. The evidence uh, relied on or referred to uh, by the appellant, which I believe is uh, a small reference Uh, in the thesis uh, that was uh, put on the record uh, refers to a a former chief traveling uh, to Alaska. Uh, And it must be remembered that the Vanta Gwichin are a sub-tribe of the larger Gwichin nation. Uh, uh, Diplomacy, travel, leaving the territory uh, are common things that leaders uh, are required to do to maintain. Uh, relationships with other tribes or other nations
6: so i'll ask you the same question i asked your colleague earlier then is there a difference between the evidence as i read it always talks about the leader not leaders as uh, the different uh, members council members so does that is that a distinction
15: uh we submit that we shouldn't look at this in a in a frozen rights type uh, way we have to see how on the evidence Uh, Leadership selection in particular uh, and who were selected to be leaders has evolved throughout our history. And that's clear uh, in the evidence uh, from the time before the Indian Act uh, where we used to select a chief and there wasn't uh, always council members uh, uh, as part of that uh, leadership system. Uh, But as we've evolved through time uh, and faced different uh, uh, circumstances or challenges, Uh, Our people have evolved the way that we select leaders and who we select, uh, but always remaining core to that uh, was leaders' connection to the land. Uh, And this was affirmed by the Court of Appeal, uh, who found that among the discerning features of Vantagwitchin society is the emphasis it places and has always placed on its leaders' connection to the land. And it was based on that that the Yukon Court Court of Appeal stated uh, at 147 of the reasons that the residency responsibility constitutes the exercise of a right that in its modern form pertains to the Aboriginal people of Canada.
3: Mr. Staphnik, I have a question for you. We know that the self-government is governing not only people residing on the land, but also people residing outside of the land. Uh, because the self-government applies to all the citizens of the the, the nation, uh, either located on the land or elsewhere, like Mrs. Dixon. So, uh, and your uh, opponent or your friend on the other side said that uh, we should not have this residency requirement because uh, somebody who is governed by the self-government not residing on the land uh, should be able to run and to, to sit on the self-government. What do you answer to that? Because I understand your point to say it is important, it is essential for the people who will be elected to reside on the land because they need to know uh, the needs of the community. But given the fact that the self-government is governing not only the community residing there, but also people residing outside, what is the justification to have the residency requirement? Why somebody residing in Whitehorse cannot run for the election? and to sit, I
15: should say. Yeah, uh, thank you for the question. We, we submit you have to look at the distinct political, social, legal context here of Vontagwitchin and our system of, of self-government and uh, look at the various ways in which non-resident citizens uh, can and do participate in our overall system of governance. Uh, unlike, as is common under the Indian Act, Uh, where uh, the only means of political participation is either uh, running or voting for a council. Uh, Under the Wontagwitchin system, we do have a council, an elected council, uh, which uh, non-resident citizens can can both uh, vote and run for in elections for that position. Uh, But we also have two other branches of government in our constitution. uh, The General Assembly, uh, which is open to all citizens, Uh, It has an annual meeting, mandated by the Constitution, open to all citizens, Uh, and this is an important avenue uh, for Wontogwitchin citizens, wherever they may reside, uh, to uh, hold the the council accountable, uh, to uh, establish priorities for the governing council, and to hold them accountable through that means, and also holding the ultimate power to amend the Constitution, uh, should they wish to change that structure. Uh, We also have an elders' council uh, where all citizens who who are uh, over the age of 60 uh, are able to participate uh, in that branch of our government in terms of providing advice and guidance uh, to the elected council and the General Assembly. So when we look at this all, uh, we see that there is a meaningful place. Um, And with respect to, yes, there is legislative authority uh, uh, that extends to citizens in Yukon, but this is of a, of a personal nature uh, rather than uh, our separate and distinct from our land-based authority, which is uh, focused on settlement land and is where the largest concentration of uh, our Vantagwitchin citizens live at this moment. So um, taken into that context, we see that there, there are all these ways of participation.
5: Mr. S- Mr. Stantick, uh, the, the Constitution, as I read, it provides for one chief and four councillors. That's the mechanism. Is that that's fair? So why does it have to be, why is it a complete ban on non-residents? It could be uh, the chief has to reside in the community and perhaps three of the councillors. I guess what is the justification for the complete ban and why is a complete ban, uh, minimally, assuming it's uh, an infringement of rights, why is that minimally impairing? What is the necessity of a complete uh, prohibition of uh, non-residents? And I guess a related question, given that I... uh, is uh, why is um, this of a constitutional character? Maybe you're going to come to that, or is it of a constitutional character?
15: Thank you for your questions. Uh, so we disagree with the characterization of, a, of an exclusion of non-resident citizens from council. Uh, there is a, a responsibility of residents, should they be elected, uh, but they are not being excluded from the opportunity uh, to, to vote. and. Uh, With respect to, like, what is the justification, uh, we see this going right to the heart of what does self-government or self-determination mean. Uh, The General Assembly, as the representative voice of all of our citizens in our system of government, uh, has considered uh, multiple proposals. Uh, They have changed the requirement uh, over time, Uh, and uh, there's, of course, a number of different ways that uh, the community could decide to restructure their governance system uh, to meet new circumstances. But we say that choice should be uh, fundamentally part of self-government and the right of the people to make that decision together. Um, And with respect to your second question uh, about the constitutional character, um, we addressed this in our submissions on on Section 25. Uh, Before I get there, uh, I wanted to jump to uh, treaty interpretation in Section 32, uh, but with respect to your question, I'll answer it briefly and, and get into it more uh, detailed. We say uh, uh, constitutional character uh, doesn't mean that you've proven the right to a Vanderpiet standard. Uh, we see that as being inconsistent with the text of Section 25 itself, which is broader than any Aboriginal uh, treaty or other rights or freedoms. Uh, fundamentally what we say, particularly where uh, self-government or an indigenous law is at issue, such as in this case, uh, that one need to look uh, on, a, on a prima facie basis, uh, whether the, the, the law or provision being impugned is grounded in a pre-existing legal order. Um, so in, in the, the Mitchell v. MNR decision, Paragraphs 9 to 11, this court talks about a presumption of the survival of pre-existing laws uh, as part of the doctrine of reception and forming, uh, uh, coming in the form of rights under the common law, uh, absent extinguishment or surrender or or incompatibility. Uh, We say none of those uh, presumptions are rebutted here. Uh, The finding of fact is clear that this is part of a historic uh, uh, legal order Uh, And that establishes its constitutional character uh, and and its protection within the scope of Section 25 uh, is because it does have uh, that that linkage to historic uh, customs and practices.
2: But I I wonder whether it's as simple as the fact that who can hold a leadership position is, is by its nature constitutional.
15: We wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, it is, as the courts below both found, uh, significant, and we agree that this is within uh, the Vuntut Constitution itself. Uh, we disagree that just because the self-government right or the self-government agreement uh, was excluded from the treaty uh, intentionally and agreed upon by the parties, that that means that uh, what the Vuntut do as a self-governing peoples uh, is not of a constitutional character. Uh, The final agreement uh, is very clear that uh, it did not extinguish or modify Vontagwitchin's Aboriginal rights uh, and interests that uh, didn't relate to uh, non-settlement land. Uh, Those continued. Again, that's clear in the self-government agreement in the preamble and general provisions that there are continuing Aboriginal rights asserted and we don't see the effect of the self-government agreement as a form of a legal straitjacket that uh, prevents us or impedes us from continuing to exercise that right. And so this is why we submit that uh, this aspect of the inherent right to self-government, specifically in this case, the right to select leaders, uh, we would include the right to uh, determine the responsibilities of those leaders uh, to the collective. That this is fundamentally an aspect uh, that, that constitutes an Aboriginal right if we were forced to meet the burden of a Vanderpeet test to establish that, we would, we would say it would meet that test uh, based on the evidence in the record. Uh, but undeniably, it's an other right or, or freedom if, if, it, if it doesn't meet uh, a strict test that might be applied to it.
7: May I just ask you this about the interpretation then? Um, clearly, uh, Section 25 talks about Aboriginal treaty or other rights or freedoms. Uh, do you say it's the same standard of evaluation for all of those? And let me just ask you the question if something is established and recognized as a treaty right, if it has already been established under Vanderpeet as an Aboriginal right, does it get more protection? in section 25 and is there a possibility for a varying standard for different rights that haven't met that test under the other rights or freedoms so that in the whatever balance is occurring uh, there is a a, a different level of of balance or um justificatory standard you you know what i'm getting at there different levels
15: yeah uh we see the text uh, of section 25 as not treating them differently. The the mandatory direction that that it shall not abrogate or derogate it doesn't differentiate again um, uh, that standard of abrogation or derogation doesn't differentiate uh, based on whether it's an Aboriginal treaty or other right. Um, uh, however, I, I do agree that identifying you know what's at stake uh, does take a uh, may require a different uh, slight inquiry based on whether it's an asserted Aboriginal right, treaty right, or, or other right or freedom. Uh, most obviously a treaty right, which we don't say is at issue here, is more obvious. It's a matter of, of treaty interpretation. Um, but we don't see uh, Section 25 as uh, imposing the same uh, burden on indigenous peoples as, as Section 35. Uh, and this, this goes to our point that we see Section 25 as a shield and its clear purpose being one of protection. Uh, in in its unambiguous wording and as correctly interpreted uh, by both courts below. Uh, It is not a provision for reconciliation. Uh, Reconciliation, as this court has defined it, is the reconciliation of sovereignties, and that is to occur under Section 35. Why we say Section 25 is uh, protective and operates as a shield is because it's intended to complement and protect that Uh, significant promise under Section 35 uh, for there to be space for Aboriginal people to be Aboriginal. And in order for that process of reconciliation to occur, most preferably through negotiation, negotiated arrangements, uh, that uh, while that process of reconciliation is occurring, uh, Aboriginal treaty and other rights or freedoms, the, the, the very things that will be reconciled with Crown sovereignty through that framework uh, will not be uh, impacted or diminished uh, by a charter claim. Uh, so this is why we see it as having a fundamentally protective shield. The, the,
7: the proposal that you're putting forward that section 25 operates as a shield, maybe absolute, maybe not absolute, but as a shield is a device in constitutional law that probably doesn't exist anywhere else in the constitution and you're trying to ground it in a provision section that's in the general section uh, that has not really been interpreted a lot, and all of those general provisions in that part of the Constitution have, if I can say it this way, played a relatively minor role, whether interpretive or additional. This sounds to me like a very important provision that you're trying to place on on something in a general section. Can you address my concerns about that?
15: Um, We we submit that uh, those concerns are largely addressed uh, through uh, focusing on a case-by-case basis, uh, what's at stake as the provision is applied. Uh, This doesn't um, uh, modify its shielding function, uh, but make sure that what is being protected uh, by Section 25, uh, meets that uh, that constitutional bargain or promise that was made by including it uh, as a form of protection. Uh, we do look at other general provisions like Section 29, uh, which uh, my friends have talked about. Uh, we see the same language, yes. uh, ab- you know, shall not abrogate or derogate, uh, and that has been given uh, been given a meaning uh, as operating as as a shield, and so. In terms of interpreting the general provisions in harmony, uh, we would say uh, that that uh, uh, the words should be given the same meaning, uh, shall not abrogate and operate the same way uh, in under section 25 as they do uh, in section 29. Uh, I agree with uh, your your point that you know this question of is it absolute shield, it goes to uh, section 28 of the charter another general provision which section 25 should be harmonized with uh, which would be compatible with uh, the similar guarantee in 35-4 uh, of equal protection uh, of aboriginal rights regardless of one's gender so uh, uh, there is a way to look at these other provisions to give uh, uh, help give meaning to the purpose and effect of Section 25. Yeah, Please. now
2: Section 25 is going to be, if if the charter applies, about as easy as three dimensional chess. Um, and uh, it sounds like I'm going to go off topic, but bear with me for just a second. I will be brief. One of the uh, realities is that uh, while uh, certain Aboriginal rights have been adjudicated or have been vindicated and recognized by a treaties, there are a great many uh, claims or assertions of rights which have not been um, dealt with by either of those mechanisms. And so they uh, remain, in that sense, unrecognized. It doesn't mean they don't exist. They're not, they're not recognized as yet. And what this court, and I think a remarkably wise decision, did in Haida was to say that where there's a dispute as to a claim and the infringement that would arise if the claim is vindicated, if the claim is well founded, the way to deal with that is through the duty to consult and accommodate, which provides a kind of a bridge so that uh, the right is not impaired while an opportunity is provided for its vindication by some appropriate means Um, and and what it did was it avoided a litigation internal to the dispute uh, a a final uh, determination within the hearing within the proceeding of um, say aboriginal title or an aboriginal right and said well that's for another day we're just going to preserve the uh, the interests of the indigenous group pending its resolution elsewhere I'm wondering whether, how one is going to deal, and I don't know if there's an answer to this, it was probably better put to the AG Canada because they've got this super duper system I'm told, Um, how you deal with claims that have have not been vindicated and how you engage in a balancing exercise where you don't know whether the rights infringed uh, on the one hand under the charter and on the other hand you're, you, don't, you don't even know whether the, 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 the indigenous right or the aboriginal right exists because at this stage it's a claim rather than a right which is recognized. And so uh, that's my, it, this is gonna be difficult to, to operate. If the, if the charter applies to indigenous governments, it's, it, this is just gonna be an extremely difficult exercise to carry out. I don't know whether there's anything you, you, you want to say to that.
15: Yeah, um, thank you for the for the question. Um, uh, it will lead me to the, the, the issue of does the Charter apply, but I, I wanted to just briefly address your question about, you know, is there a way that a prima facie assessment of a right that hasn't been, you know, confirmed by court declaration or defined in a treaty, is there a way that the, that the um, HIDA framework or uh, the approach helps us in 25? Uh, we say it's helpful in that it clearly demonstrates that uh, the courts are competent to take into account the nature and existence of, a, of an Aboriginal right prior to proof. Uh, you know, a, a, you know, a high, um, uh, you know, a strong prima facie claim. Uh, uh, but, uh, but unlike Section 35, uh, in, under Section 25, there's no um, independently sort of enforceable obligations that flow from uh, Section 25. It doesn't sort of create rights, it doesn't provide a new basis for uh, the Vuntagwitchin or or anyone else to bring an action against uh, government for other rights or freedoms. Um, It it, it preserves uh, in our submission uh, things that might be uh, 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 where there's a question of is it an Aboriginal treaty right, is it it an Aboriginal right, is it a treaty right, or is it an other right or freedom, if it pertains to uh, the people as aboriginal people, uh, primarily because it's grounded in their pre-existing legal order, uh, then that, that's where the presumptive shield should come up. Uh, uh, it is not, um, uh, though uh, totally the same as you say uh, in the duty to consult framework where there's a role for the crown. Uh, this is, uh, we see why 25 plays this protective function uh... so that those that dialogue where reconciliation is supposed to occur you know through negotiation with the crown who does represent the public interest including aboriginal canadians uh... that that the path forward can be addressed in that process
2: and just a very quick comment and i'll let you go on um, I, I i made the point earlier that you can see twenty five as facing in one of two directions one direction being uh, federal government or provincial government on one side, the other direction being indigenous self-government. It's easier for me to contemplate the operation of 25 looking towards parliament or the legislatures. It's less clear to me how it will function looking the other way.
15: Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll turn to our submissions on charter application because... You know, 25 is, is really the, in the alternative to uh, the, this issue of does the charter apply. You know, there's been various submissions about um, how the charter doesn't apply to, quote, intergroup, or 25 doesn't apply to intergroup distinctions. There's the comment from Justice Basterash. Uh, but when we look at the Wontagwitchin agreements and what was negotiated for and the provision that the Wontogwytchen would or, or shall have their own constitution and it shall guarantee the rights and freedoms of their citizens, uh, shall provide those citizens with the power to amend that constitution and it shall provide citizens with the ability to challenge laws that might be inconsistent with the constitution. Uh, so the parties clearly mutually intended uh, for the Wontogwytchen constitution to play a significant role. In these types of situations, where it is an internal dispute and one that would be decided wholly not on the basis of the Charter, uh, but on the on Vuntut law and principles, and and um, despite both of the courts below uh, finding that the Charter applied, which you know we we submit was an error, uh, in 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 outcome that was the result of, of the shield is uh, as the Yukon Court of Appeal rightly noted. Ms. Dixon has and continues to have the ability to bring a challenge in Yukon Supreme Court on the basis that it uh, violates her right to substantive equality as guaranteed in the Vuntut Gwitchin Constitution, uh, and so that mechanism, which was negotiated for uh, through these arrangements, uh, we see as the proper and best uh, way of, of addressing these types of disputes, and that means the. Uh, Uh, recognizing that the parties never intended for the Charter to apply here. Um, And we say that the courts below uh, erred in two respects in finding that the Charter applied. Uh, First, by failing to properly interpret this common intention of the parties uh, that the Constitution, the Vontagwitchin Constitution, uh, would be the supreme law of the First Nation. Uh, while uh, also at the same time uh, ensuring that uh, uh, the rights of of Vontaguchin citizens as Canadian citizens, such as those guaranteed in the Charter, would continue to uh, apply as it does to uh, the entities and activities that it does apply to. Um, So when we look at the the text of the the, um, agreements and, and interpret them generously, uh, in light of you know the text and objectives as a whole, and, and not just you know a few provisions in isolation, we we see this handiwork uh, of the parties that they they intended for the Vuntut Constitution to uh, be paramount with respect to internal affairs, um, and its wording that the self-government powers to be negotiated would be in conformity with the Constitution of Canada. Uh, we submit doesn't. Uh, demonstrate a common intention that the Charter would apply. Uh, It simply states the obvious in our submission uh, that the Crown and and the Vontagwitchin could not amend or alter Canada's constitution uh, through a land claim uh, or self-government agreement, Uh, that what they were doing would be consistent with Canada's constitution which includes sections 32, 25, 35, 91, 92. Uh, We are not uh, trying to disrupt that, but trying to find space within the constitutional fabric of Canada in which we could be self-determining again under our own legal
11: order.
5: So I'll ask the same question I asked of uh, the appellant, which is where does that fit in Eldridge? Is it branch one and branch two? And then related question, because it doesn't seem to me to fit neither branch, And secondly, uh, here you say uh, there was no intention to apply the charter, or maybe the the intention was to not apply for the charter not to apply. This is ultimately an agreement that's given effect through federal legislation, right? So on on your theory, it would have been open for for Parliament to have approved an agreement that says the charter, the most fundamental law of Canada, simply does not apply. Now, I set aside the question of whether or not Um, a self-governing indigenous nation under section 35 when there isn't a legislative framework and a web of agreements given effect through legislation may be able to have uh, the charter not apply but here we have it done through a particular mechanism of federal legislation and it strikes me as passing strange that the parliament of Canada could agree to something that says the charter is not going to apply Uh, so First question, which branch of Eldridge? Second question, uh, why, you know, what what if, what if the, anyway, you've got my
15: question. Thank you for the question. Uh, We submit that fundamentally 32 is the front door to charter application. There is no other basis for charter, for the charter to apply. Uh, Section 32 is clear in its text that it applies to the parliaments, legislatures, their governments, and matters within their authority, Uh, we see neither branch of Eldridge being met here. When we look at the nature of the uh, the entity at at issue here, which specifically is the Wontagwitchin General Assembly as the body who made this law, uh, uh, and if we look at the activity, uh, the constitution-making of the General Assembly, We see neither of these meeting this fundamental requirement uh, in every Section 32 case of this court uh, that there has to be a power that's been conferred uh, through a particular statutory scheme uh, or a program. We disagree that the effect of the legislation here, when it's interpreted uh, in light of its purpose. Uh, Is to give the Vontagruchin its powers. Well,
5: it refers to devolution in respect of education health social services justice and employment Yes, so so... I would have thought that is uh, the mechanism that's used and that isn't uh, Maybe as I said there may well be a section 35 uh, Inherent self-government right but the particular mechanism used here is devolution and the when I look at those activities education health social services justice. And in addition, the taxation power deems the First Nation to be a public body performing the functions of government in order to be tax-exempt under the Income Tax Act. And there are many other provisions in the various agreements. So when one looks at the objects in the Constitution, all the objects are functions of uh, government. So I think one has to deal with the activities and look at the nature of the activities under Eldridge and say, are these functions of government and the mechanism in which they were, were uh, acquired uh, in this particular mechanism. They may have existed independently, but under this mechanism, they were devolved uh, to use the language of the agreement.
15: Yes, we have to read the, the, the agreement and the text closely in what devolution is referring to. Uh, it's referring to uh, uh, matters that uh, might be properly seen as uh, subjects coming in the, the normal legislative authority of the Gwichin through the agreements. Uh, we don't accept that uh, the effect of the legislation was to transfer even those uh, powers uh, to the Uh We've always had, um, you know, uh, the, the you know, interest in educating and caring for
5: uh, our, our families and children and community, but but it's not either or. That's my point. It's not either or. Uh, it can be both. But this mechanism that we, to which there is a constitutional challenge, is a styled a devolution mechanism that has the imprimatur of a le- federal legislation. So yeah. I, I don't think it's either or. We see the constitution as being very unique
15: uh, in that these are. Um, If we look at the the federal legislation in particular uh, and what its purpose is, was to, you know, approve and give effect to the agreements on behalf of Canada. Uh, Yukon had to pass legislation to make it binding on itself. And importantly, the Vontagwitchin, as the third party to the agreement, had to ratify it uh, through a decision of the people to make it binding on them. There were three parties uh, agreeing to this. And when we look more specifically at the the legislation, we see it's actually a a, a vacating of space by the federal government, uh, where they had once used 9124 power uh, to intrude on internal affairs through the Indian Act. Uh, They were now vacating that space so that our constitution enacted in accordance with our inherent right uh, would have space to exist uh, within the constitutional fabric.
2: The the implication, I suppose, is that uh, unless the Parliament of Canada and the territorial government uh, uh, use some instrument to, shall we say, open up the space without addressing in any way the the inherent right of self-government, whether it exists or whether it doesn't, unless the uh, Parliament of Canada and the legislature of the territory using a legislative instrument to open up the space. The only other way you can get there is a unilateral declaration by the Gwich'in themselves, which is rather a radical move and perhaps not to be encouraged.
15: (laughs) That's correct. We see this as the preferred pathway where this is a a negotiated uh, outcome for uh, this space to be vacated uh, for the continuing Aboriginal rights uh, of the Vanta Gwich'in. Now, of course, in 1993, the Crown wasn't prepared to recognize that this was an existing Aboriginal right, but as is clear by the legislation, they were uh, uh, agreeable that certain aspects of it, which are, if we look at these powers, basic, fundamental to self-government, not the outer limits of self-government, but at its very core, uh, that even in 1993, uh, after the heels of the failure of Charlottetown, uh, that the parties were able to make this remarkable achievement. Uh, so, uh, following Eldridge, we don't see, you know, a, a specific and precisely defined connection uh, between uh, the, the, the approving legislation of the Crowns and the General Assembly's authority uh, to, to make the residency responsibility, or the GA itself as an entity.
7: I want to go and talk a little bit about just that and the I mean Eldridge is a very very different case all right it's about services and 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 those sorts of things Um, if we're talking about section 32 there's no doubt that the wording of section 32 is directed towards certain forms of government that were recognized at the time that the Charter came into existence Eldridge talks about whether it's government activities or government functions. But uh, the uh, Yukon or Yukon has um, uh, put forward a different proposition. And that is uh, perhaps the step that can be taken is that Section 32 can recognize bodies that have and assert inherent rights to self-government. That you use 32 to apply to in circumstances, whether you say you agree to it in the final agreements or the umbrella or in the settlement agreements, but that um, the real purpose of Section 32 was to make the Charter applicable to actions that uh, governmental bodies take vis-a-vis people subject to their jurisdictions, which would fit a self-government model. So,
15: Yeah, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, We don't read Section 32, its text, uh, or its interpretation to date by the courts as standing for a principle that uh, if you look or act like a government at times, that the Charter will apply to you. Um, There are many entities... Not
7: yet. (laughs) That's what I'm asking you. What's wrong? What's inconsistent with your coming forward and saying we have an inherent right to self-government, pre-existing... The constitution with a recognition that if you do have that right and you're exercising it in jurisdiction over your citizens why can't section 32 be extended in the manner that the yukon has suggested
15: Um, we don't see any constitutional principle operating uh, to to amount to a a transformation of section 32 uh, to apply to uh, indigenous governments exercising uh, their inherent rights uh, where section thirty two would uh, otherwise not apply um, we you know we see that in Charlottetown this exact proposal to expressly add indigenous governments into section thirty two uh, was proposed and rejected through that through that political process we don't see any gaps in the text of section thirty two uh, for example, in which uh, unwritten constitutional principles uh, might uh, try to apply the Charter on that basis. In fact, it, we submit that uh, the unwritten constitutional principles here actually support non-application of the Charter to the uh, uh General Assembly
5: What do you say about section 16 of the Yukon First Nations Self-Government Act which talks about the subject to section 17 to 19 subsection 22 federal and territorial laws apply to a first nation What do you you say about that? And I guess also, uh, it seems uh, uh, it's it's perhaps a a simplification to say that the federal government has ceded uh, authority because even section 22 sub 4 says for greater certainty, lands in which an interest is transferred or recognized uh, remain lands reserved for Indians within the meaning of section 24, uh, class 24 of section 91. So, this is an exercise of 9124 jurisdiction, and it remains subject to federal jurisdiction according to that. Great, so it's a two-part question. Yeah,
15: so, so the, the answer lies in the text of the agreements. Uh, it is clear that laws of general application continue to apply to the Gwitchin, to Gwitchin settlement land, to Gwitchin citizens, uh, but there are uh, limits to that uh, in the agreements themselves. Uh, for example, a Yukon law, of general application ceases to apply to settlement land uh, where Bunto legislates in that uh, and occupies that field. Uh, so again, where Bunto is taking up space, you see a vacating of space uh, in Yukon laws. Uh, with respect to uh, the continued application of federal laws such as the criminal code or so forth, um, th- those continue to apply. There are uh, unfinished negotiations under Uh, the self-government agreement with respect to what happens when a Vantagwitchin law conflicts uh, with a federal law. So we're clearly seeing here three orders of law contemplated in the text that uh, this is not a federal uh, power uh, that the Vantagwitchin are exercising, but uh, their inherent uh, power in these areas.
7: I'd like to just ask a a more general question at this point, and that is I understand your submissions about the charter not applying um, in terms of of leadership. I have a few questions, but um, this is on the basis of residency. Uh, What if we change the grounds, uh, the enumerated grounds? Um, What if uh, the rule is that no women uh, can become leader, no two-spirited person can become leader? Outside seven generations, I know I'm, I'm giving examples, but that people only of a certain age—not just over 18, but of a small slice—that might have have some kind of uh, resonance with the community. Um, wh- what do we deal with? That? How does that work? Is it an absolute right? Then, in terms of of uh, unless it's in your your own constitution.
15: Um. You know, here we say it's, it's really not necessary to, to sort of answer these... Well,
7: it's necessary for us to answer at, it. And,
15: and in the Wontagwitchin case, uh, uh, the Constitution, it can only be amended by the citizens, the collective, and uh, at, at, at Article 18, uh, there is a, a, back, a backstop to it. Uh, amendments to the Constitution by the GA uh, have to be consistent with the self-government agreement have to be consistent with the rights and freedoms guaranteed uh, in the articles uh, in the Constitution. So uh, the the guarantee of equality, which, uh, unlike the Charter, doesn't specify uh, individual grounds uh, or or, or, or purport to be comprehensive in that way, uh, but but fundamentally guarantees equal application of the law, uh, could not be removed. Uh, it, It is required to be in there, or else the Wontogwitchin would be both in breach of their agreements for failing to uh, protect the rights of the freedoms as they negotiated for and and wanted, uh, but they would be in breach of their own constitution and it would be uh, remediable. We also know that to the extent that this is an Aboriginal right, and it's agreed that it's an Aboriginal right or or in other cases potentially a treaty right, uh, that those rights are not absolute, but the limits uh, imposed on those rights uh, come through section 35. Uh, by the Crown, which must do so in a way that uh, can be justified. Uh, so the Crown continues to have a power, uh, if it disagrees with a particular exercise of an Aboriginal right, uh, to legislate that. Obviously, I don't think uh, any party wants that, and why negotiated frameworks such as this one provide a model uh, for how to avoid that situation.
4: But yeah, uh, the, the Court of Appeal alluded to, I guess, an argument you made at in first instance, Article 4, sub-7, I guess you've just alluded to it yourself, the rights of every individual under, your, under the Constitution um, to be treated equally before and under the laws of the Wuntutkwitsch First Nation. Would Ms. Dixon have been able to invoke that as against another provision of the Constitution that says she doesn't have the right to be an eligible candidate? You see what, you see yep, the problem yep. there. So, so she says, sees that and says, well, it wasn't really an option for me to argue that my right of equality under the uh, Vantut Tutkwitian First Nation Constitution was compromised, I'm going elsewhere under the Constitution of Canada, which is also recognized. How, yeah. how, how do you answer, answer that? And then the treatment by the Court of Appeal of this argument, I'm at um, paid, uh, paragraphs 156, 157, where they, where they uh, treat, say that this was not a bar to her going forward, as she did.
15: Um, so yeah, our, our submission first begins with, on this point, that as a constitution, our constitution should be treated as a constitution. Uh, and understood through the Wontagwitchin perspective uh, as our supreme law. Uh, one of the unique features of the Wontagwitchin constitution uh, is we define Wontagwitchin law as including our constitution. Uh, so there isn't uh, a, a, an issue of the guarantee of rights, of uh, equality under Wontagwitchin law, uh, that it's stated in the constitution itself, I think, is... Uh, uh, would be part of any section one argument that this is sort of demonstrably justified in a a free and democratic Gwichin society that they made a consensus decision to to put this uh, 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 residency responsibility in the constitution uh, while also recognizing that someone may wish to challenge that for being inconsistent with another part of the constitution. Uh, and uh, the appellant in this case did plead uh, reliance on this right initially uh, before the Yukon Supreme Court, but didn't advance any arguments uh, at the hearing on this ground and focused solely on the Charter. Uh, And so uh, uh, that uh, remedy, which we say was, uh, or that mechanism, uh, through the Buntagwitchin Constitution should have been the basis in which Uh, the claim was heard and decided, first, because the Charter doesn't apply, and second, because this mechanism to address this type of challenge was precisely what was negotiated for.
2: By the way, uh, that was a question that I had intended to put to counsel for Ms. Dixon. The claim that it was internally inconsistent with the the residency requirement was internally inconsistent with the uh, self-government constitution. That just seems to have disappeared. Um, uh, uh, is it your position that it is not before this court and is not a matter which w- we should uh, address at all? Uh, we
15: we agree with what the court's, uh, court of appeal below stated and that Ms. Dixon's continues to have uh, the ability to bring a claim. Uh, uh, we submit that uh, that's uh, you know, if she wishes to advance the claim uh, properly at a hearing below, uh, that would be the best course of, of doing that uh, at the Yukon Supreme Court as uh, described in the Gwitchin Constitution. Uh, we see this though as fundamentally important uh, in the process of reconciliation and self-determination, where we see the TRC, we see the missing and murdered uh, Indigenous women and girls inquiry pointing to indigenous legal traditions, their revitalization, uh, their strengthening and continued development to be at the forefront of the process of reconciliation. And we don't get there uh, by modifying or reading down or applying the charter uh, over these legal traditions uh, which have their own valid and unique ways of, of managing uh, relationships uh, you know, within the collective in between individuals uh, and the collective.
7: I I understand what you're saying there, but do we run into a problem about the level of abstraction that we use when we're talking about prior um, existing legal orders? Accept that as a premise, all right? So let's say we do. And um, is it the right to uh, choose a leader? absolutely included right right to choose councillors right to place residency requirements right to tie things to land um, and when you talk about an evolving nation um, what do we do with the fact that the evolution is that not all peoples are still on the land in the same way that uh, the evidence in front of us is that there's a, a very large part of your people that are in in white horse and have to be in white horse to get the kind of services that they need um, in 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 their lives and um, so so what do we what do we do with that um, when the nature of the relationship with the land for reasons you explain well has changed and there's an evolution uh, how, how does that uh, come into bearing?
15: Um, we have to, in this case, look at the Vontagwitchin perspective to understand its evolution from its you know, previous forms in the way it was practiced to its modern form. Uh, the Vontagwitchin perspective, with respect to the current form, of the residency requirement uh, established in the Bontukwichin Constitution you know our first written law we didn't always uh, write our laws either uh, in English no matter mm-hmm. uh, but we see here uh, uh, in the evidence uh, in particular of, of Robert Bruce Jr uh, a Bontukwichin elder who 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 speaks to the initial conception of the constitution and why the seat of government Uh, provision that our governance be located on our land uh, was placed in there. Uh, It was uh, partly a continuation of of wanting to go back to this way of making major decisions uh, that affect our future uh, together on our land uh, rather than in in distant places uh, like Ottawa by the Minister uh, on our own behalf. Uh, And so uh, bringing uh, and affirming uh, uh, the, the location of our authority was seen as an important part of uh, re-establishing and, and revitalizing our self-government. Uh, in particular, yes, there have been many citizens as a result of uh, the history of colonization in this country, which has displaced uh, many Vantagwitchin citizens. The evidence is quite clear that uh, many choose to live away because there's simply better socioeconomic opportunities elsewhere. Um, uh, but what we see uh, is the residency responsibility actually uh, wanting to bring people back to the land uh, where we do have a very small community and where self-government is really hard work and you need people to uh, not just make decisions but implement them. Uh, And so we see an important purpose here and it bears out on the evidence that uh, many, many non-resident citizens uh, do uh, who, who live away for periods of their life uh, to gain education, to gain experience, do come back and serve as leaders and do live in the community and bring that experience back as part of our work of self-government. Uh, so we don't see this as, as exclusionary.
7: But can I just uh, uh, press you a little bit on the fact that this is a, a citizenship-based um, sort of organization if you, or government and 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 the citizens are in different places and when these uh, modern treaties were to be ratified uh, there was a, a very inclusive uh, system set up where there was voting that took place in Whitehorse um, and so um, what's wrong with that model uh, in terms of your election when you chose it at, at a very uh, important time in your history
15: yeah I want to be clear that this isn't about voting this is about serving on council and who's elected there is no bar uh, like Corbiere against that. voting for I Northern understand States. that. so th- this is this is different here and uh, maybe with my remaining time I'll turn briefly to our, our points on section 15 Uh, which we say uh, uh, both courts uh, addressed in error with respect to the first stage of analysis in finding that uh, the analogous ground of aboriginality residents uh, actually applies uh, in this context. Um, We submit that this um, uh, first stage of analysis, as we know, it's intended to screen out claims uh, uh, that would trivialize the guarantee of substantive equality or undermine uh, efficient use of of judicial resources. And and when considering this ground, when it's been alleged uh, to apply, given the diversity of circumstances of indigenous peoples today and their systems of government and and where they may be in their process of reconciliation, that when this distinction is alleged, that one needs to pay particular attention to the the political, social, legal context of of the group, in this case, the the group of non-resident citizens, uh, and, and in this case, we say that this context of and self-government in law uh, shouldn't be ignored or glossed over. Uh, and unlike any other Section 15, one case decided by this court before, uh, the law being challenged in this case is an Indigenous law uh, being uh, uh, made in the exercise of a, of a right pertaining to the Aboriginal peoples of Canada. And so, you know, even given the text of Section 25, uh, it's clear that uh, uh, applying this analogous ground, or if it's alleged that that should be done in a, in a sensitive way, and that uh, we need to look at what Corbiere was actually speaking to, uh, as as, a, as the group uh, that that uh, made up the content of that writer, the distinction at issue, which was on and off reserve band member status, uh, created and perpetuated by the federal government under the Indian Act, uh, which did. Uh, bring it into this category similar to other listed grounds as something inherently suspect uh, uh, or potentially discriminatory, a constant marker, uh, because of the particular context uh, in which that analogous ground was defined and found. Um, We say that this is not a race-based law like the Indian Act, the Council Residency Responsibility, and there's no evidence here that non-resident citizens as a group experience pre-existing disadvantage or stereotyping. So it's our submission that under 15.1, there is no uh, listed or uh, or analogous ground at issue, and the claim c- could end there, or the analysis under 15 should end there.
5: I think the claim on the other side, though, I mean, you used language earlier, you said you didn't see it as exclusionary, and we believe that people, citizenship, it's appropriate for citizens to live in the community. Um, the, the, the position on the other side is that they do see it as, a, uh, Ms. Dixon does see it as exclusionary. Uh, and when you say it, you live in the community, she, she says, I am part of the community and your law tells me that I'm not part of the community. and Unless I live uh, on, on the First Nation, I'm not part of the community. And that's the, Corbier isn't an exact analog, obviously, but it does, the, the discrimination is alleged, anyway, to arise from the fact that it sends the message that I don't belong because I don't live there. I don't live on, on, uh, on the First Nation. But she says, I'm just as much part of the community as a, an, uh, an uh, off uh, First Nation person. That's the discrimination alleged. So I think drawing fine distinctions with what was going on in Corbier uh, won't actually address the root of her her complaint.
15: Yeah, Fanta Gwitchin does not wish to deny Ms. Dixon's feelings uh in the, in in responding to this claim uh we ask that the context of Wantaguich Self Government Law uh the distinct political social and legal context be taken into account and and given respect here because uh we see that uh within the context of the constitution it's, as itself which defines the relationship of citizens to the First Nation uh we have this broad and inclusive uh, participation uh, of non-resident citizens uh, within the group. Uh, you know, if you if you get past this uh, first stage, you know, this is what the second stage calls for: is you know the full context of, of the claimants' group situation, the actual impact of the law on the situation, and, and any persistent systemic disadvantages. Uh, the court in Corbière specifically emphasized: uh, this is de Bay at paragraph 95, uh, the need for a system that recognizes uh, the place of non-residents and contemplated that there could be another uh, other ways of doing that.
4: But she also said at paragraph 18, she speaking about the disenfranchisement of, of uh, band members who live off the reserve, that it presumes that aboriginals living off-reserve are not interested in maintaining meaningful participation in the band or in preserving their cultural identity and are therefore less deserving members of the band. She describes this as stereotypical reasoning. Is that not at all applicable here?
15: Uh, It is not applicable here in our submission. As this court found in Tapotat. more than a web of instinct is required here. Uh, There needs to be specific evidence and there is no evidence uh, that Puntaguićan uh, citizens, uh, the same as off-reserve band members, are subject to uh, marginalization or stigma or stereotyping. You know, Chief Justice Veil himself found uh, that uh, the residency responsibility uh, recognizes the role of non-resident citizens and ensures a role that respects rather than denigrates the rights of non-resident citizens. I wonder if I may just take 30 seconds for
0: close-up. go ahead, please.
15: So in closing, we submit that in order to advance and not frustrate reconciliation, uh, we urge this court to reaffirm as a fundamental proposition in Canadian law its statement in the recent decision of Hotel that it is for Aboriginal peoples to define themselves and to choose by what means to make their decisions according to their own laws, customs, and practices. In the words of Wontogwitchin elder Robert Bruce Jr., It's important that the Vantagwitchin have a chance to resolve these questions in our own ways. Mosi thank you.
0: Thank you very much. The Court will break for lunch. We'll be back at 2 o'clock. Mr. Millen.
16: Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. On behalf of the BC Treaty Commission, I have three points. Number one, Crown Indigenous agreements are important and must be respected by the courts. Number two, those agreements must be promoted by giving Section 25 meaningful effect. And third, I'd like to address the test, which we say should be somewhat different than that proposed by the Attorney General of Canada. First, the importance of treaties and other government-to-government arrangements involving Indigenous communities can hardly be overstated. Over the past few decades, successive Canadian governments have recognized the need to negotiate with Indigenous peoples. Indeed, this court has reinforced a strong preference for negotiated outcomes. In this arena, perhaps more than any other, paraphrasing Justice Binney in the Little Salmon case, where parties have sought to order their own affairs in a treaty, the court should strive to respect their handiwork. The court's role is to reinforce and promote what Chief Justice Lemaire famously urged at the closing of his reasons in Delgamuuk: negotiated settlements with good faith and give and take on all sides.
2: What if the uh, what if the treaty does not contemplate or refer to the application of the charter? Is it then to be imposed?
16: We don't address section thirty two and the imposition of the charter. It is our position that that's addressed by other parties, and we address section twenty five. But my starting point would be the agreements negotiated in this case you've got a final agreement and then a self-government agreement all of which lead down to or lead into a constitution that's the core area where that the 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 the, the matter should be adjudicated not necessarily um, just exterior or fr- first principles but rather the text of the agreement that the parties negotiated at the time and which uh, the federal uh, territorial and indigenous governments then uh, brought into force with legislation So these issues are all the more acute when the case involves the internal constitution of an indigenous community. Constitutions embody the fundamental values and principles of law which govern society. They are the result of careful internal reflection and deliberation. Constitutions command tremendous respect. Article 34 of the UN Declaration recognizes that indigenous peoples have the right to promote, develop and maintain their institutional structures and their distinctive customs. Treaties and constitutions are the best way we have in Canada to make space for indigenous legal orders because then the interwoven jurisdictions of the three levels of government are recorded and mutually agreed. And this addresses your question from a few submissions prior, Justice Rowe, as well as that of Justice Martin on the Haida case. And what, what do we do when we don't know what the rights are? Well, when we do know what the rights are, when the treaties and the agreements between the parties set out the rights That's when we have to pay close deference to their terms. In terms of the purpose of Section 25, we say there's nothing unusual about charter rights being limited. We've all agreed that no rights within Canada are absolute. Section 1, Section 33, Section 25 all have an independent role in limiting the rights otherwise set out in the charter. For those who suggest that Section 25 should simply be used as an interpretive tool in the Section 1 test, we reject that view. Section 25 is a standalone provision and deserves standalone application and meaningful content, as the Court said of Section 35 in Sparrow. There's nothing new about protecting collective minority rights. That was recognized in the Quebec Secession Reference and it's expressly provided for in Section 15.2, affirmative action programs that treat individual Canadians differently based on the groups to which they belong. We should not be seeking a lowest common denominator that applies to everyone. That ignores indigeneity and other constitutional rights protected uh, in our existing constitution as well as other constitutions. So last, the test. Our submission is that individual rights must be defined as not going so far as to abrogate or derogate from indigenous collective rights. This is what former Justice Frank Iacobucci in his 2003 Supreme Court Law Review uh, uh, referred to as definitional reconciliation. And so the test proposed by the Attorney General of Canada asks whether the exercise of a collective right is truly necessary to the maintenance of the indigenous culture. While this is somewhat similar to the test we proposed at paragraphs nine and 19 of our factum, it can be taken too far where the collective right at issue is enshrined in a treaty, self-government agreement, or constitution. A key purpose of Section 25 is to protect indigenous government's ability to preserve their unique institutions. And there may be various means of maintaining indigenous culture. Where a constitution signals what is important to the nation, whether that nation is indigenous or otherwise, a court ought to be very wary of suggesting that the constitutional provision might not be very important to maintaining the indigenous people who created it thank you very much
4: chief Justice may I may I uh, sure. ask you, thank you so much just to, to follow up on your your last point on the the necessity uh, aspect of the the test if the right in question is is a section 35 right as opposed to another right uh, pertaining to indigenous people is it Possible to say it's already necessary because it's a Section Thirty Five right? Like, do you need an extra necessity test if you've already recognized it under Section Thirty Five?
16: No, and our our submission would be that once you have acknowledged and 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 I, I concede that there has to be some level of proof to reach the protection warranted by Section Twenty Five. But once you accept that there is a Section Twenty Five protection for example, because it's a Section 35 right, then there's not another determination of whether that right is necessary. Because Section 35, the Vanderpeet test, already imports that level of test. You don't get Section 35 protection unless you've proven that it's part of the unique culture of that indigenous culture. And likewise, if it's a treaty right, you don't go and say, well, is it really important that we have this treaty right? The the government of Canada, when it negotiates treaty rights, it doesn't negotiate unimportant rights. The government of Canada and territorial governments, British Columbia, Yukon, elsewhere, uh, those those treaties need uh, firm and significant protection, and and Canada's test would dilute that and would allow what what Section 25 says you can't, which is derogation. So a minimal impairment test, which is what Canada effectively proposes, that's not for 25, that's for Section 1. You don't get to Section 1 unless you've gone through Section 25. Thank you very
0: much. Mr. Madden?
17: Good afternoon. I'm starting my submissions with a request. How Indigenous self-government as an inherent right to Indigenous people that finds its original source outside of Canada's constitution is ultimately recognized and brought into Canada's constitutional framework desperately needs an overarching and organizing framework from this court. The case law is increasingly strained. We saw this in the C92 hearing. We see this in the case before. It's the, those strains flow from trying to fit concepts from Eldridge using language of delegation that do not fit with our constitutional architecture that has Section 35 within it section 35 is the means and mechanisms by how those ancient roots that actually anchor canada's constitutional legitimacy indigenous laws and legal orders are brought into our constitutional framework it's not a a me fool you or a constitutional sleight of hand of those orders come in and then delegation is given back through 91 or 92. This court in Shilkotan says, those rights exist outside of 91, 92. They're held against other governments uh, for the peoples. What is needed is similar to what this court did in Manitoba Metis, setting out an organizing theory around the honor of the crown. This issue of how those are brought in and then also not looking at this continually through a section 35, section 25 provision by provision uh, uh, view or case law, but looking at it holistically about how does this actually make sense in order to ensure that we encourage further modern day treaty, treaty making. The idea that Justice Jamel introduces of, well, simply because there's federal legislation, all of a sudden that brings indigenous peoples underneath Canada's control yet again, fundamentally undermines the concept of modern-day treaty making and what this court said in Quebec's secession of Canada is this experiment of trying to reconcile diversity within unity. When Indigenous governments come into the constitutional fabric and are then recognized in Canadian law, that doesn't mean that they're remade in the image of what Canadian law looks like. Treaties carve out a constitutional space in order to allow for those jurisdictions and those decisions that are fundamental and immutable. Just uh, in December, we talked about how making decisions about children and families are fundamental to that core of self-government. We've also know that deciding who the people or your citizens are themselves is fundamental to that. And in self-government at its core has to be what's the governance structure itself, and who gets to vote, how decisions are made. And if that can't be protected in the process of treaty making when indigenous governments are brought in, it undermines and actually would have a chill on that self-government process. We also wanna answer Justice Rose's uh, question directly on, it does, section 32 uh, does not automatically apply. This court has repeated in several cases recently about look at the text of the constitution and what it says first instead. And from, a, uh, from that perspective, section 32 is clear that it doesn't include these governments. And also through the process of treaty making, indigenous governments don't become using the words from the wall decision, emanations of the state or state actors under the control of the federal government or the provincial government in relation to decision making. They have a unique space and that unique space is set out in the treaties. So we would emphasize that section 32 on its face doesn't mean it automatically applies. And also we would urge that Eldridge not be uh, misappropriated in order to say clearly clause one these things are not under governmental control. That's not the deal. And secondly, they're not just delivering a program or service or a policy of government in particular in relation to their core and inherent self-government functions. So not, so. if there is going to be a way to articulate this, it has to be in a different mode. We say section 35 is the mechanism in order to do that. There is a clear, look at the architecture. It's in part two. It's very—it's it's the unique p- way in which we bring uh, indigenous peoples into our constitution and, and recognize them within Canadian law. And then the interface is through, the front door is through section 25 in order to interrelate that or interface that with, um, with part one of the constitution. We would also just emphasize that, and, and looking at the text of section 25, um, of section 35 using the language of land claims agreements, and then you see that linkage to the language in 25. That if there is a land claim agreement, that's the end of the question. If they have carved out the jurisdiction or that is respect, is that is recognized in the land claim agreement, the fact that those two provisions use the exact same language has to mean something. Thank you. Those are our submissions, uh, barring any questions. Thank you very much, Mr. Gardner.
18: Chief Justice, Justices, alongside my co-counsel, Caroline Grady, we're representing the intervener Carcross Tagish First Nation, or CTFN. In our time, we will be focusing on the practical context underlying Section 25 and the need, in our view, to apply that saving provision broadly and early, rather than narrowly and late. Our client took immense care and caution to enter the Yukon Umbrella final agreement and self-government framework based on the solemn assurance that their customary practices for governance, leadership and internal laws would continue. Since its effective date in January 2006, CTFN has carefully and painstakingly worked on developing laws and governance processes which could walk in both worlds, the Western world and the world of CTFN's ancestors. These revitalization efforts do and should look different than the Western liberal, individual rights-based approach enshrined in in the Charter. CTFN's governance centers around a clan system that is inherently communal in nature and may be at odds at times with purely individual interests. This incredible space, revitalizing and reinvigorating systems of law which have been actively oppressed for generations, must be protected and encouraged to the fullest extent of the law, including in our Constitution. And indeed, this is what the intention is behind Section 25. It's for this reason that we say the application of Section 25 must be sufficiently broad and shield unique institutions, norms, and government practices rooted in Indigenous legal orders, as suggested in the Canadian Bar Review article at tab 5 of our Book of Authorities. It's also why we say the protective effect of Section 25 should be engaged at the outset of a potential conflict as done or suggested by uh, the court below at paragraph 151 of their reasons, rather than after a charter infringement analysis as suggested by the appellate and several Crown interveners. Without this early and broad application of Section 25, Indigenous governments based on Indigenous legal orders will face costly barriers and challenges. The cost challenge or the cost complexity and impact uh, of defending charter challenges to Indigenous laws and governance practices, even if such challenges are upheld in a nation's favour, will compromise their capacity to do the work connected to reassertion of their legal orders at the long awaited moment in time when safe legal space is being created for this work. Defending these unnecessary charter challenges is expensive time-consuming and will chip away at the capacity of Indigenous governments to carry out their primary duties and responsibilities. Second, by being narrowly applied and uh, being applied narrowly and late, Section 25 will diminish the prospect of reconciliation because it will impact the way in which a nation, such as VGFN or CTFN, chooses to structure their governance system, and it will force nations to fit their legal orders within a framework of individual rights. CTFN's approach to revitalizing Indigenous legal orders is concerned with balancing the way that individual human rights and collective Indigenous rights are harmonized, and this will not change. However, the effort necessary to achieve this balance is not equally split. It takes significant resources, which are limited to to rebuild laws and processes that have been systematically dismantled. Necessary resources will be diverted from revitalization efforts if the nation is required to focus on mitigating litigation,
4: is your concern risk, is your concern <laughs> tempered to some degree by the proposal made by some uh, today that the one doesn't need a full section 15 analysis or a full individual charter right analysis? It's sufficient that that right be engaged, or some others are saying prima facie violated, and then you. Then you move directly to the section 25 analysis. That, doesn't that stem some of your concern regarding the, uh, the the time wasted before the court, time and resources wasted before the courts?
18: It does. Certainly, the the approach proposed by the respondent, uh, I think, does fit that that mark. We are concerned by the final step of the, uh, the Attorney General Canada's uh, framework in that we think it, it, does, it doesn't alleviate these concerns, that these, these challenges are just going to, to run up costs uh, for nations unnecessarily. And so just said another way, the, the important space that we say is intended to be created by Section 25 will be substantially diminished if this protective section is applied narrowly and at the latter stages of a conflict. So, gunashish those are
0: our submissions. Thank you very much. Jeffrey
19: Nichols. Chief Justice, Justices, Tezin Tlingit Council is a self-governing Yukon First Nation with final and self-government agreements that parallel those of EGFN. The key submission TTC wishes to bring to the court's consideration in this appeal is that nation-to-nation negotiations are an appropriate mechanism to address the application of the canadian charter to self-governing indigenous governments there are three points i wish to emphasize first negotiation of the charter respects the nation-to-nation relationship between the crown and indigenous peoples ttc submits the canadian charter does not apply to self-governing indigenous nations under section 32 of the constitution Instead, the Charter applies if there is express agreement by a self-governing Indigenous nation or accepted transfer of authority from a government that is subject to the Canadian Charter. Nation-to-nation negotiations and a consent-based approach move beyond the acknowledged paternalism of the past. Some contemporary treaties expressly agree to the application of the Canadian Charter. The Yukon final and self-government agreements in the perspective of TTC do not. Second, negotiation recognizes Indigenous peoples have distinct fundamental values, freedoms, and responsibilities that warrant recognition. These unique values and frameworks of rights and responsibility are foundational in the relationship between Indigenous governments and their own people. Imposing the Canadian Charter without agreement undermines this relationship. For example, TTC's government and society are clan-based, The five Tezin Tlingit clans are the foundation of TTC culture, identity, and institutions of the government. The whole of TTC government and society are bound to each other, their ancestors, and future generations by Hakustii, the Tezin Tlingit way. Hakustii embodies fundamental values and principles that differ from those expressed in the Canadian charter. Third, negotiation of the charter promotes greater clarity and certainty. This is particularly so because indigenous nations exercise inherent powers alongside authorities that may be accepted as transferred from the Crown. As set out in TTC's Factum, the development and implementation of the Tezen Tlingit justice system provides an example where Tezen Tlingit principles and processes and the Canadian justice system interact. It is an example that highlights the merits of a negotiated approach to the application of the Canadian Charter. Of course, Indigenous justice systems are a core aspect of self-government and self-determination. Recognition in modern treaties of administration of justice powers promote justice systems grounded within the values, principles, and processes of self-governing Indigenous communities. In the example of TTC, the administration of justice agreements between Canada, Yukon, and TTC do not expressly provide for the application of the Canadian Charter. These agreements contemplate the development of a Tezen Tlingit Charter. And expressly provide for reliance on Tessin Tlingit values, principles, and processes in the administration of TTC justice. For TTC, like other Indigenous nations, it is imperative that Tessin Tlingit values, principles, and frameworks of rights and responsibility are at the center of interpreting and resolving disputes related to Tessin Tlingit law. As noted, an Indigenous justice system like TTC's may interact with the Canadian justice system. Negotiations on the application of the Canadian Charter can provide greater clarity regarding this interaction. The Crown and Indigenous nations can delineate when the Canadian Charter might apply versus when Indigenous laws, such as a TTC charter would prevail. This court has consistently emphasized that negotiation is, as was described in Haida Nation, a preferable way of reconciling state and Aboriginal interests, and also the preferred process for achieving ultimate reconciliation. Recently in Des Hotel, this court confirmed negotiation can foster reconciliation and has significant advantages for both the Crown and Aboriginal peoples, as such, obtaining clarity about Aboriginal rights and having the potential to produce outcomes that are better suited to the party's interests. TTC submits that negotiations addressing the application of the Canadian Charter are appropriate within the framework of the Yukon final and self-government agreements and would provide greater certainty and clarity to Indigenous legal systems, lawmakers, and courts. Subject to any questions, that concludes my submissions. Kanath Thank you very much.
0: Tammy Sharanik,
20: Chief Justice and Justices, it's our submission, first, that Yukon First Nations self-government agreements and constitutions that flow from the Yukon Final Agreement Modern Treaty Framework are integral to the fulfillment of the commitments made in those treaties and are sui generis in nature. And second, to the extent this court finds that the charter applies, which we say it does not, but do not speak to the issue, we submit that section 25 shields all sui generis rights, including rights of self-government, affirmed by and agreed to in Yukon First Nations self-government agreements and expressed in First Nation constitutions. The Council of Yukon First Nations represents as members and associate members, 10 of the 11 Yukon First Nations that have entered entered into final agreements, including the Buntut Gwich'in. All of those final agreements are substantially similar in content. And all 11 of those nations have also entered into self government agreements further to Chapter 24 of the final agreements, which are also substantially similar in content. So given these similarities, this appeal impacts not just the Vuntutnich Agwichin's residency requirement, but the constitutional protections of all self government rights in those agreements. This court's previously found in First Nation of Nacho Naik-dun that Yukon final agreements are of a sui generis nature and that reconciliation is found in the respectful fulfillment of a modern treaty's terms. That's at paragraphs 33 and 38. And the Yukon Court of Appeal below rightly recognized the sui generis nature of Yukon self-government agreements in addition to the final agreements. Stating at paragraph 93, quote, rather than engage in the perhaps futile debate regarding inherent Aboriginal rights and the source of the authority to self-govern, courts should recognize the sui generis nature of modern treaties, and I would suggest self-government agreements, and interpret them in a manner consistent with the national commitment to reconciliation. In our submission, this respectful fulfillment of the final agreements requires recognition by courts that self-government rights, affirmed by self-government agreements and exercised in constitutions of self-governing First Nations are integral to the implementation of these final agreements and are therefore also sui generis in nature. Final agreements are modern treaties that create a legal basis for the nation to nation relationship. And the self-government agreements and First Nation constitutions that flow from them fulfill commitments made in them. Self-government agreements affirm and codify the nature of agreed Yukon First Nation self-government rights, but I note, they do not negate from any inherent rights of self-government and that is protected in the final agreements. And the Yukon First Nations uh, exercise those self-government rights in part through their unique constitutions. Now, it's my understanding that the residence requirement doesn't violate the terms, or it's not alleged that it violates the terms of the Montaukwitchin self-government agreement. Instead, it's an example of the valid exercise of the nation's exclusive power to enact laws related to its internal government, which has been affirmed in its self-government agreement. It also fulfills the nation's commitment in its self-government agreement at chapter 10 to enact a constitution with provisions that establish its governing bodies. It raises the question of what value do the Vuntut Gwich'in or any other nation's self-government agreement and constitutions have, both at law and in furtherance of reconciliation, if courts decline to affirm and protect the nation's governance structures and traditions protected and established in its constitution? It's the most fundamental expression of its inherent and affirmed self-government rights. And we submit that Yukon self-government agreements and constitutions are necessary components of the modern treaty framework, They realize the commitment to self-government and reconciliation made by the Crown in the final agreements, and that commitment must be honored. We submit that they should be recognized as such by this court by finding that they, like modern treaties, are sui generis in nature, and for purposes of Section 25, they are other rights, and they are shielded from the application of charter rights. We submit the shield of section 25 should extend to protect all self-government rights affirmed by Yukon self-government agreements and expressed in Yukon First Nation constitutions including the Vuntut Gwitchin residency requirement and any challenges to those First Nation constitutional laws can and should be made under the nation's own constitution including under the equality provisions of those constitutions which chapter 10 of the self-government agreements mandates must be in those constitutions and that mandate has been met by the Vuntut should this court choose to interpret section 25 in this way it would ensure there's no abrogation or derogation of self-government rights affirmed by self-government agreements that flow from the modern treaty framework instead of requiring first nations to meet onerous and amorphous tests for each exercise of already affirmed and agreed to self-government rights and we submit to require as much would be a step back from reconciliation subject to your questions those are my submissions
0: thank you very much maître
21: Chief Justice, Justices, uh, my submissions today will focus on a single point which we believe is of crucial importance when interpreting Section 25, namely the role of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, UNDRIP, and specifically Parliament's adoption of the UNDRIP Act on June 21st, 2021. Now, both parties in this case and multiple interveners have relied on UNDRIP in their respective submissions, and similarly, UNDRIP played a significant role in the C92 case heard just uh, last December by this court. So considering UNDRIP's importance in both cases, we submit that this court should adopt a principled approach that would clarify the declaration's key role in constitutional interpretation and provide guidance to lower courts and litigants. That principled approach, we say, is to apply a robust presumption of conformity to UNDRIP, meaning that Section 25 should be presumed to provide protection at least as great as that afforded by UNDRIP. Making that submission, submission, sorry, we we build uh, first and foremost on the recent guidance of this court in 9147 Quebec Inc. Uh, In that case, the court clearly established the importance of methodological rigor when uh, using international norms. And we believe the same rigor should be applied when dealing with the UNDRIP Act, when looking at the UNDRIP Act. The framework established in that case by Justices uh, Brown and Roe focuses on the nature and the source of the relationship to our our constitution. The nature of the source is analyzed through the binding -binding, non-binding distinction with binding instruments, those that Canada has ratified carrying more weight and thus giving rise to the presumption. Well, on the other side, non-binding norms can still be relevant and persuasive, but carry less weight. Now this framework brought much needed clarity but it was developed before uh, the adoption of the UNDRIP Act. We submit that the framework can and should be extended to include a presumption of conformity for what is in essence a sweet, generous implementation of UNDRIP through the UNDRIP Act. In this case, in particular, Parliament's clear intention uh, provides the rationale to extend the presumption of conformity within the framework developed by this Court. The very purpose of the UNDRIP Act is to affirm UNDRIP as a source for the interpretation of Canadian law. This is is stated clearly both in the preamble as well as section four, paragraph A of the act. This means that UNDRIP can be used to interpret and apply all Canadian laws, including the constitution. Now, if, if the weight of international norms depends on their respective nature and source, well, it would appear that under, the under Act provides an even stronger basis to apply the presumption when compared to ratification. Now, ratification or accession sometime, uh, sometimes is 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 what underpins that the, the presumption, but it is fundamentally a crown prerogative uh, exercised solely by the the executive, expressing its willingness for Canada to be bound by certain international norms, as stated by Chief Justice Chief Justice Dixon. This ratification is an indicia of, of the protection, protection, sorry, afforded by the Charter. But the same logic should apply a fortiori when Parliament, the legislative branch, also expresses in clear terms its attention to grant interpretative force to certain international norms. And in that case, the presumption does not have to rely on an implicit, implicit, sorry, indicia or even a legal fiction instead it's it's grounded squarely in a clear and, and expressed direction by parliament as such we submit that the under act provides a much stronger basis to apply the presumption and this, uh, this is also why we say that it, it should be a robust presumption now this presumption is also particularly appropriate given the language of the under act uh, itself and here I, I refer to the preamble which highlights that the rights and principles affirmed in the declaration constitute the minimum standards for the survival, dignity, and well-being of indigenous peoples. And this is also found in uh, UNDRIP itself, Article 43. Now, taking the original formulation of the presumption by, again, Chief Justice Dixon, it would seem logical that the Charter should be presumed to provide protection at least as great as those afforded by similar provision in international human rights document, which, yes, Canada has ratified, but also which Parliament has explicitly acknowledged constitute the minimum standards for the survival and dignity of indigenous peoples. In closing, I would say that applying a robust presumption of conformity requires a detailed and serious engagement with the substance of the relevant, uh, rights provided in the declaration. And this exercise requires looking at the totality of UNDRIP to uphold the purpose of the declaration and avoid contradictory readings of certain provision. And I refer to your memorial for further submissions on this point. Thank you. Subject so to any
0: question, these are my submissions. Thank you very much. Merci Uh, Bruce Stusser.
22: Thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. The Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations of Saskatchewan, otherwise FSIN, represents 74 autonomous Indigenous nation governments, which are of Assiniboine, Cree, Dakota, Dene, Denisoklane, Anishinaabe, Soto ancestry. With the exception of four non-treaty First Nations, the other 70 Indigenous nations are parties to numbered treaties with the Crown, each with unique histories, cultures, traditions, values, and customs, and which choose and select their leaders on their own accord through their own sovereign processes. The FSIN is mandated to protect the Indigenous and treaty rights of its member nations and to advocate for their sovereign, inherent, and Aboriginal right to determine, select, and impose standards of conduct for leadership by their own terms, natural laws, customs, traditions, norms, or indigenous institutions. The inherent right to choose leadership is consistently recognized by Canada as an existing right of self-government recognized by section 35 sub one of the Constitution Act. The FSIN supports the respondent Vuntu Gwich'in First Nation for reasons which include the following. First, today, given the importance of the reconciliation of Indigenous interests with those of the Crown, we consider comments made by Chief Justice or Justice Binney in Mitchell and others, where concepts of Indigenous sovereignty, whether merged or shared, are stated to be essential to the achievement of reconciliation, as well as to the maintenance of diversity. To impose parameters, restrictions, and prescriptions on Indigenous governments of today, would be the antithesis of reconciling the Indigenous interests' objectives of self-preservation and self-determination in coexistence with the Crown. The importance of Section 25 of the Charter in protecting and preserving the Aboriginal right of self-government is therefore a means to further strengthen the concept of reconciliation and is also consistent with Canada's recent UNDRIP legislation which adopts the concept of non-interference with Indigenous Peoples' Governance and Institutions. Protecting the autonomy and sovereignty of Indigenous governments is of paramount importance to the FSIN, and they perceive Section 25 of the Charter as acting as a shield with the ultimate objective of protecting their rights to further their indigeneity. As acknowledged by the Yukon Court of Appeal, the Canadian Charter was not drafted for First Nation governments. The imposition of the Charter, and in particular, the challenge based on Section 15 Sub 1, in this case, properly triggers from the outset consideration of a Section 25 consideration to shield the Indigenous government from any further process. To allow a Section 15 Sub 1 Charter right to prevail over the right of the Section 25 Charter collective right could ultimately result in a deterioration or diminishment of the cultural and institutional fabric of an indigenous society, which is integral to its existence, such that the indigenous society may eventually cease to function. As alluded to in paragraph 153 of the Yukon Court of Appeal decision, the consequence of persistent continuous attacks pursuant to section 15 sub one of the charter, requiring a reasonable justification analysis with section one of the charter on each occasion would also create an unnecessary burden to the detriment of any First Nation in Canada. In conclusion, the FSIN submits that its member Indigenous nations are self-governing by exercising their inherent existing Aboriginal right to select and elect their leaders by their own laws. In our view, possessing a self-government agreement with Canada serves to strengthen the respondent's position on its sovereignty by upholding the laws of the Gwichin First Nation. In conclusion, we submit that the foundation and endurance of an indigenous society is not its individuals, it is the strength of the institutions of the collective. Thank you. Any reply, um, Ms. Gilbright?
1: I will be short. Uh, First, just some evidentiary references. The reference that former Chief Peter Moses lived in Alaska is found in the affidavit of Robert Bruce Jr. and the site for that evidence is found at footnote 6 of our appeal factum. And second, there is evidence of harm caused by the residency requirement to Ms. Dixon and other non-resident Gwichin citizens. The harm is serious and real and it can be found at paragraph, outlined at paragraph 83 of our factum and the evidentiary source for that outline is footnote 111 and I refer you to the numerous affidavits and reports referenced therein. And third, just to point that my friend justified the residency requirement at least in part because it was a right made by the people at the General Assembly and the General Assembly has serious access impediments to exactly the group who is excluded by the residency requirement. And I refer you to paragraph 34 and 35 of my factum, which outlines some of those problems. What the residency requirement ultimately does is it has the effect of denying choice to the Gwichin people at the ballot box by limiting, and we say arbitrarily limiting, the candidacy pool.
5: could I, I just ask a question? Go ahead, please. Do you, do you say that there's any, there's five, uh, four councillors, one uh, 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 chief of the council, right? Is that right?
1: Uh, yes. Four. So do you
5: say that there's any restriction that can be implied, applied at all or do you say it's all five, have to, all five could be off, uh, off the First Nation or do you say it's not minimally impairing in this case because uh, you're not even allowing one? So what's your...
1: I say it's not minimally impairing in this case. Uh, a restriction can be devised by the nation that suits, that suits their needs and their circumstances, yet gives participatory rights to Ms. Dixon and non Funtiquichin citizens.
0: Thank you. Mr. Stepnik.
15: uh subject to any pressing questions the, the justices may have, uh, has no further submissions on reply.